scenes from the movie Prometheus we're going to be talking about tonight because Charlize Theron has a birthday. Uh, we're very excited about that. And of course, welcome to It Came From Cleveland. But what episode are we on now, Michelle? Episode... Eight. I think this is 18. 18. Look at that. I don't know until I upload it and then I have to look at our playlist and then I'm like, okay, number of that. Um, you know, I'm sure I can make a note for myself somewhere, but... <laughs> Uh, but anyway, and uh, welcome to the show, Michelle, of course. So uh, we're very excited. We're going to be talking about two birthdays from uh, this uh, uh, this calendar week uh, who shared the, the screen together. Yep, yep, yep. We have, uh, yeah, David Duchovny in uh, April, uh, August 7th, 1960, and Gillian Anderson in my birth year. But she's an August 9th baby, so 1968. Nice. And, uh, of course, another uh, famous birthday. Joe, you're going to be talking about uh, a, a legend of, of film and shocks. Yeah, somebody who might have slipped through the cracks and, you know, one of those abstract uh, directors of film. Uh, a guy named Alfred guys. Hitch Hitchcock. Okay. Alfred Hitchcock, okay. you say. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard <laughs> of say. him. Never, Never heard of him. <laughs> hey, at least uh, it's not Alfred Hitch penis. There you go, ooh, living. Oh, yeah, no. Okay. okay. I don't have that drop ready, so. <laughs> um, but, uh, and uh, Miles, uh, next segment, you're going to be doing a little exploration into another classic Star Trek episode. Yes, it is definitely a classic. Um, very, I would call, anti-war. Nice. So we can all deal with something like that. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm doing this uh, this special for Susan because Susan is a big fan of a, a, a little-known fella, uh, Justin Thoreau, who is not just an actor, but he is a writer. And he's actually, uh, I don't know if, if you guys are familiar with his work, um, but he you know he's done some uh, some great uh, roles. And he, he did... Um, uh, he, he was in The Leftovers on HBO, which was a great show. He also starred in the David Lynch movie, Mulholland Drive. We'll be talking about that in, in a minute. And uh, he uh, was in um, American Psycho. He had a great role in that. I've got a great clip from him in there. And uh, But he, uh, you know, he's been in a lot of other things. Uh, Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion, Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, uh, Wanderlust. Uh, the Girl on the Train, The Spy Who Dumped Me. 
uh, lots of, of stuff, uh, you know, just weird, a weird variety of stuff. But he also is a writer, and he's one of the architects of the Marvel Cinematic Universe because he wrote Iron Man 2. So uh, that's, uh, you know, and he wrote other things, uh, the, the musical comedy drama Rock of Ages from 2012, and he wrote uh, Tropic Thunder uh, with Robert Downey Jr. and uh, Ben Stiller. Jack Black. So, um, what do you mean, you people? Uh, so anyway, but yeah, so Justin Thoreau, he, he's had a great career. Um, uh, and again, kind of a multifaceted guy. I actually, dated Jennifer Aniston for quite some time until she got back with some dude named Brad. I don't know if you ever heard of him. Oh, so. yes. <laughs> But there's a really fun part in uh, he again. Uh, Mulholland Drive is is how I you know first recognized him. Of course, the David Lynch film from uh, 2001. My lord, uh, 20 years old. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but it has a, a really great cast. It has Na- Justin Theroux, Naomi Watts, uh, Ann Miller, and Robert Forster, who just passed away a year or two ago. Um, and of course, uh, music by Angelo Badalamenti, who works with David Lynch on all kinds of stuff, uh, including Twin Peaks. You'll have a Twin Peaks connection later too, uh, Michelle. And, uh, but yeah, so, th- but this movie, the Justin Thoreau is, you know, it's, oh, he was also in Inland Empire in 2006. So that's another, uh, David Lynch movie. That was, we waited five years. We were like, mm, we want a new David Lynch movie. And, um, Inland Empire was just uh, incredible, but uh, but yeah, so it, you know, there it's it's kind of a, a Hollywood Hills um, crime thriller with plenty of uh, David Lynch weirdness thrown in, and uh, one of the the standout scenes for me was um, uh, this fellow uh, this fellow named Adam played by Justin Theroux. Uh, he, he, all of a sudden his money dries up and, and, you know, he's got some, you know, strange ties and, uh, whatever, but he calls, I, I, I don't remember the name of the girl or the actor who he calls in this scene, but, um, he, he calls and he's like, Hey, what's going on? I don't have my money. And, and then she tells him that somebody's looking for him. And, uh, it, it's just, it, this scene will stand on its own. It's pretty funny. Hello? Uh, someone maybe shut off my money. I know. Where are you, Adam? Sorry, what, what, what do you mean you know? Somebody called. When they couldn't get you, they, they told me you were as good as broke. I didn't believe them, so I made a few calls. And? You're broke. Yeah, but I'm not broke. I know, but you're broke. Where are you? <laughs> I'm at Cookies downtown. Do you know somebody called the Cowboy? The cowboy? Yeah. <laughs> the cowboy. This this guy, the cowboy, wants to see you. Jason said he thought it'd be a good idea. Oh, Jason thought it'd be a good idea for me to go see the cowboy. Well, should I wear my 10-gallon hat and my six shooters? <laughs> Something tells me that this guy is connected to what's happening. Adam, I think you should do it, and I think you should do it right away. What's going on, Cynthia? <sighs> a very strange day. Getting stranger. 
So where, where do I meet this cowboy? I mean, do I have to ride out to the range? Sort of, funny boy. If I tell him the meeting's on, you'll have to go to the top of Beechwood Canyon, and there's a corral up there where he'll be. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> Will you meet with him? Yeah. Sure. No, it's just been that kind of a day. When? Um, I'll call him right away, and then I'll call you back. You know, you, you, you could stay at my place if, if, you, if you wanted. Uh, uh, Cynthia, no, I don't think that'd be a good idea. I was just offering a place to stay. Yes, and I appreciate the offer, Cynthia. I'll, I'll find a place. Now, look, just go on and give that cowboy a yodel and get on back to me. Okay. <laughs> go on, give that cowboy a yodel. Get on back to me. Good David Lynch weirdness <laughs> there. Uh, so, uh, I, uh, just a great movie. If, if you want to see something weird and fun, uh, kind of a crime drama with, uh, some weirdness thrown in, uh, check out, uh, 2001's, um, Mulholland Drive. Now, here, okay, okay. Now, this is one of my favorite scenes, and, and Justin Thoreau does a fine job in this, but he doesn't, the scene is not owned by him. The scene is owned by Christian Bale in American Psycho. And if anybody remembers, there was a boardroom meeting. Well, it was, it was actually not necessarily a boardroom meeting, but a bunch of the, the yuppie creeps were all meeting in uh, a boardroom or hanging out. And at one point, they had their own version of a, uh, a wiener measuring contest, except it was about who had the nicer business card. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the, uh, and, and, uh, um, well, the, the cause of much duress, uh, for Christian Bale's character, J uh, uh, Bateman. What's his, uh, oh, God, Patrick Bateman. The, the cause of Patrick Bateman's distress comes from uh, primarily Justin Thoreau's character, who plays a guy named Bryce, who can't believe he prefers another guy's business card over his. <laughs> and it's just such a great scene, and it actually it it it, it translates kind of well uh, into audio. So here's here's that. Uh, so everybody, uh, get your business cards out. New card. What do you think? Whoa. Very nice. Look at that. Picked them up from the printers yesterday. Good coloring. That's bone. And the lettering is something called Cillian Braille. It's very cool, Bateman, but that's nothing. Look at this. That is really nice. Eggshell with Romalian type. What do you think? Nice. Jesus. <laughs> that is really super. How do nitwit like you get so tasteful? <laughs> I can't believe that Bryce prefers Van Patten's card to mine. But wait, you ain't seen nothing yet. Raised lettering, pale nimbus, white. Impressive. Very nice. Mm. Let's see Paul Allen's card. His voice is all shaky. <laughs> white coloring a tasteful thickness of it oh my god it even has a watermark something wrong 
Patrick, you're sweating. <laughs> I love that so much. Something wrong, Patrick? You're sweating. <laughs> <laughs> that actor played uh, Albie in Big Love. I don't remember his name, but I, of course, I just talked about Big Love a while ago when uh, we had our Bill uh, Paxton show. Um, and he played a real creep in that. But yeah, so uh, that that was uh, so those are kind of a couple funny moments from a couple of his movies. But there was a three, um, a three season uh, television series on HBO called The Leftovers. That it had some stumbling blocks in the show. It, it's like they kind of really almost retold the series and literally just upended it and moved it to a different state and city and everything in uh the second episode uh it, it was a very strange uh, uh television show it's 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 you know easy enough to follow but it does have some weirdness but it's a good if you're a fan of hbo series like uh, six feet under um uh or uh maybe the sopranos or something like that you might want to give this a, a watch but basically it's it's kind of a, a sci-fi drama and it's kind of like the Left Behind series except it shows what would really kind of happen if it was Left Behind. Oh, you know, if you like the Watchmen series, you probably like it because the the guy who did the Watchmen series did this series. Um but it's kind of a more realistic take. It's like all of a sudden like a huge percentage of the population is just gone. And this was before the Thanos snap too, everybody. Um, and, and, and it's people trying to fill the void of losing their loved ones and stuff like that. And it's really kind of fantastically done. And there's a cult the called the guilty remnant that shows back up. And, uh, Justin Thoreau is a sheriff, uh, or, or, uh, chief of police in, in his town, uh, in the first season until he, you know, they, they move the show somewhere else. And it's really it, it, and it does dip into the sci-fi of what happened, but it also deals into a lot of crazy, uh, spiritual, you know, kind of like haunting spiritual stuff, not you know Jesusy kind of stuff. Um, and and so it's it's almost like a, a sci-fi horror drama, really, and uh, it has some pretty brutal stuff in it. But by episode or by season two, Justin Thoreau's character. Um, is uh, is kind of just an absolute wreck. Uh, he he basically he lost. Uh, um, well, actually, no. I think it, uh, in the first season, I think he lost his wife to cancer. Oh no, no! Uh, I don't want to spoil what it was. I think I, his wife left him. But the reason his wife left him has to do with the disappearance of, of people. But I don't want to spoil that for you because that's actually a big, uh, big turning point in the in the series. But he's just like absolutely uh, losing it in um, uh, in in this. The show ran from twenty fourteen to twenty seventeen, so it's pretty pretty recent. Um, we only had, uh, but he played uh, Kevin Garney as uh, Mapleton's chief of police. And father of two who's trying to maintain a semblance of normalcy after uh, the sudden departure. That's what they call it, the departure. But uh, it, it, there's... And, um, 
his uh, uh you know this the cast it has Liv, Liv Tyler in it, uh, Christopher Eccleston who was the first Doctor Who on the return of yeah yeah, yeah. Christopher Eccleston plays yeah, um, cool. a very very religious man. Um, and, uh, I think he's the brother, I think he's the brother-in-law to, um, Justin Thoreau's character. Uh, but yeah, it has just, um, uh, let me see, Amy, uh, no, uh, yeah, Amy Brenneman is in it. I don't know if you know who she is or not. Uh, I'm trying to find the, um, where is it? Carrie, yeah, Carrie Coon. Carrie Alexander Kuhn actually was uh, played uh, um, his love interest in this after his wife left him. And this scene is between uh, her and um, and him, and he's kind of losing his mind. And uh, she plays Nora. So, yeah, so the, the Kevin and Nora have quite a time throughout the three seasons. But this is in season two. It doesn't spoil anything. But it kind of shows you some of the craziness that's going on. But this is from season two uh, between uh, uh, Kevin and Nora. Have you been noticing that I've been um, kind of losing my mind? What? I'm letting you handcuff me to the bed every night. And we're acting like that's totally normal. I left the baby. I forgot the baby. You act like that's no big deal. You had your hands full. It happens. I'm seeing someone. What? I've, I've been seeing someone. Who? Patty Levin. Guilty Remnant, Mapleton. But she's dead. Yeah. So <laughs> I've been seeing someone. Patty Levinson. But she's dead. She was a... a <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so that's some of the, you know, kind of weirdness, uh, that, that you can, uh, expect if you want to check out the leftovers. I highly recommend it. It was a fun series. It had, again, it had some stumbling blocks early on, but it got a lot of acclaim for how they ended the series. Um, and, uh, it was, uh, it was pretty great. Um, so, it, it, and again, it, I, you know, all those stupid left behind movies and stuff that they do and, and that crap. You know, the rapture stuff. This is like the coolest version of that you're ever going to see. So, outside, of course, you know, the Avengers movies. But, come on. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, alright. So, moving right along. A movie I know Miles enjoys uh, is uh, uh, Prometheus. Uh, Ridley Scott film, which was one of the Alien prequel, One of the two Alien prequels. Made in the last decade, uh, of course, uh, it, it's so hard to believe these movies were made so long ago, but uh, Prometheus and Alien Covenant, and I don't think we're getting the third one, and I'm really mad, but thankfully, HBO Max has Raised by Wolves, which is kind of the spiritual predecessor um, uh, to those two films. But yeah, so Miles, you're, you're a fan of Prometheus, right? 
Totally. I mean, it is right under Kingsman, but yeah. Right under Kingsman? You're bringing Kingsman back? <laughs> God, speaking Sorry, of lefto was... speaking of leftovers. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, well, the reason I picked Prometheus is because uh, Charlize Theron has her birthday uh, uh, this week, I believe. And um, it, she just plays a, a really cool badass in, in the movie. Um, and she's essentially the in charge of the Wayland yutani um, uh, mission to uh, the, the planet that they're going to. Uh, to find new life. Uh, but yeah, the movie came out in 2012. Again, how crazy is that? The movie's nine years old. But uh, great cast. Nomi Rapace, Michael Fassbender, Guy Pearce, uh, Idris Elba, uh, and of course, Charlize Theron, who uh, again has her birthday um, on August 7th. So yeah, and she's uh, the young age of 46. Uh, and she's done some really great movies too. Uh, I still need to see the Ian Flux movie that she she did. I want to see if that's any good. I, I kind of enjoyed that that MTV cartoon when it was on, but um, it wasn't bad. Yeah, so I'm gonna have to I'm gonna check it out. She's she's good in like everything. So I mean, even if it's a dumb movie or TV show, um, you know, she's great in it. But uh, yeah, so uh, the uh, the cast um, we we have of course uh, Charlize Theron is Meredith Vickers, uh, she's uh, the Wayland uh, Wayland Corporation employee who is there to monitor the expedition. Although she does have a bit of a secret about her character, um, and uh, but she's a hard nose. She is tough. And everybody is in suspended animation in the beginning of this, as you do when you go to, uh, you know, planets far off for these crazy expeditions. And she's the first one awake. And we see her dripping with all the, the whatever fluid, the, the, you know, that they use to um, pickle you for this trip into space. She's dripping with <laughs> fluid and she's just doing push-ups. Rope. David enters, played by Michael Fassbender. How long? Two years, four months, eighteen days, thirty-six hours, fifteen minutes. Any casualties? Casualties, Mum. Has anyone died? No, Mum. Everyone's fine. Well, then wake him up. <laughs> well, then wake him up. <laughs> so uh, she, he, so this is this doesn't have um, Charlize Theron in it, but uh, uh, he proceeds. David does proceed to wake up the cast, and of course, uh, uh, Nomi Rapace, uh, her character is uh, Liz Doctor Elizabeth Shaw. And uh, that's who we see waking up. And so while she was doing push-ups after being in suspended animation, this is how Nomi Rapace's character is doing. Try to relax, Dr. Schultz. My name is David. Your mind and body are in a state of shock as a result of the stasis. It's all right. Perfectly normal. Yeah. <laughs> she puked like 15 times. <laughs> 
So, uh, so yeah. Again, just to kind of illustrate how how uh, hard nosed uh, her character is in the movie, um, and uh, and again for anybody who hasn't seen it, I don't want to spoil anything. So I've just got some kind of early clips, uh, but this is a, a nice little interaction between her and Idris Elba, who uh, he's the captain of the ship. Um, and, uh, yeah, Idris Elba played Janik. He's the captain of the Prometheus. And he, really cool character for him to play. Uh, honest to God, Idris Elba's another one of those actors. He could do anything. This movie is so full of those actors. Idris Elba, Michael Fassbender, Charlize Theron, Nomi Rapace, all of them can do anything. They can do no harm. And, um, but here's a quick little interaction, uh, because apparently... Uh, Miles, this is, must be my favorite Christmas movie because it takes place at Christmas. I always forget that. <laughs> but um, uh, Captain uh, Janik uh, is decorating Christmas tree. Uh, and this is how that goes. What the hell is that? It's Christmas. Need the holidays to show time. It's still moving. Mission briefing is about to start, Captain. Might want to make your way down. Well, I haven't had any breakfast yet. <laughs> haven't had any breakfast yet. <laughs> kind of does a fun little southern drawl there. Um, but yeah, so so this uh, apparently I'm gonna everybody put this on your Christmas movie list. Uh, just watch <laughs> out for the make sure the garland doesn't fall into any black goo though. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> have you seen this movie, Joe? I have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a it's a good one. So and again. Oh, yeah. If you drop your garland in the black goo. That's the thing, man. For God's sake, don't be. Ah, God, you're making it worse. Ah, it's fainting. It's fainting. Ah, it's freaking worse. Ah! <laughs> I watched that scene and I was just like, oh my God, the, you guys. Um, but uh, before the expedition happens, uh, this is the longest clip that I have, and then we got to get going to the break. But this is a, a, a conversation with, uh, you'll hear Michael Fassbender as David in here briefly, uh, mostly playing bartender, uh, Charlize Theron's character, and Nomi Rapace, and um, uh, Logan Marshall Green as Charlie Holloway, uh, discussing the mission and... Um, Again, just illustrating what a, what a hard-ass she is. Doctors, Miss Vickers would like to have a quick word before the adventure begins. <laughs> wow, nice place. It's actually a separate module with its own self-contained life support. Air, food, anything Miss Vickers would need to survive a hostile environment. Okay, so she lives on a lifeboat. Yes, I do. I like to minimize risk. David, why don't you make the doctors a drink? I'll take a vodka up. Charlie, look. It's a pooling med pod. They only made a dozen of these. Michelle. Please verbally state the nature of your injury. Please don't touch that. It's a very expensive piece of machinery. It does bypass surgery. What do you need it for? I think there might be some confusion about our relationship. Waylon found you impressive enough to fund this mission, but I'm fairly certain your engineers are nothing but scribblings of savages living in dirty little caves. But let's say I'm wrong, and you do find these beings down there. 
You won't engage them. You won't talk to them. You will do nothing but report back to me. Um, Miss Vickers, is there an agenda that you're not telling us about? My company paid a trillion dollars to find this place and to bring you here. Had you raised the monies yourself, Mr. Holloway, we'd happily be pursuing your agenda. But you didn't. And that makes you an employee. <laughs> if we can't make contact, why did you, why did you even bring us here? Waylon was a superstitious man. He wanted a true believer on board. Uh, Cheers. True believer. Cheers. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so the, again, what a great movie. What absolute craziness ensued after that. <laughs> oh my God. They brought the head back. <laughs> Francie should like this movie because they, 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 they brought a head Heads. back to the ship. Heads up. <laughs> Uh, it was a little more unstable than the heads Francie's normally used to, though. Right, Joe? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> a bit. So, yeah. I was thinking of the the black goo. Isn't that where Denise Crosby got hers in black goo in Star Trek? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. The, the essence of evil or whatever they were calling yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, and very nice. I just watched uh, Spaceballs the other day. It was on TV, and I was like, "Ah, why the hell not?" Of course, John. Uh, 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 yeah, John Hurt's uh, line in that. Not again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all I got. I just wanted to play a little bit of stuff for you there from uh, Prometheus and some stuff from Justin Thoreau. Hope everybody enjoyed it. We're going to get into some Star Trek after a quick Kill the Hippies music break uh, coming up right now.
was scrambling to find a Star Trek clip. <laughs> uh, welcome back to the program, uh, everybody. Uh, of course, uh, hello, Joe and Michelle. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Looking forward to your fun onslaught in the last two hours uh, of uh, some X-Files goodness and some Hitchcock goodness. And uh, But in the interim, uh, we got to get to some Star Trek stuff with Miles. Uh, Miles, you've picked out an episode, and we got some audio clips for you um, from the original series. And uh, why don't you go ahead and set this one up? Alrighty. Um, this is a classic. It, uh, one quick point of um, order. It's a small bit of trivia. The, um, oop, that's thunder. Hopefully uh, our internet connection stays up. So the uh, series, this episode was listed as number 23. And the episode after it was known as Space Seed. That's the one with Khan. Yes. Uh, played by the uh, uh, Ricardo Montalban. And due to a uh, rewrite issue they had to you know do some more work on the plot and story everywhere or whatever space seed was actually filmed first and was actually released on the air first before this episode but the changes were made so quickly that it it was still slated as coming after so in the official star trek listing this episode is number 24 uh, uh 23 and space seeds 24 even though the, they aired in reverse Anyway, that's a small interview. What's interesting? So, uh, basically, this is a diplomatic mission for the Enterprise. They are escorting a ambassador from uh, the, the Federation, the United Federation of Planets. And this is another quick note. This is the first episode where the United Federation of Planets is actually listed as... Um, the the driving force that the enterprise answers to in other episodes there's like space command space central etc you know yeah one thing called united earth space probe agency which kernick pronounced as uspa <laughs> anyway i don't i don't okay. know what episode that happened in but <laughs> anyway so they want to establish relations with this planet and so they are approaching it and the planet warns them away like hey don't come any closer, but the ambassador, being the, uh, the stuffy individual that he is, commands or gives the order for Kirk to proceed to the planet. And they go, and they're in the planet, and they're like, "Hey, uh, we'd like to come down and visit." And the planet's like, "Sure, why not?" So they go and beam down. Uh, and this is um, Kirk, Spock. Um, a female that is has minor plot issues and two red shirts. <laughs> uh, uh oh, I'm sorry. Uh oh. Yeah, and a uh, fun fact about red shirts in this episode that I'll get to later. So um, they're met by the leader of of the planet MNAR Seven, and he, um, he gives them the bad news that uh, hey. Uh, we're in a war with the uh, Vandekar, another planet in the system, or maybe a nearby planet, another star. I, I, I'm assuming how quickly the attacks happen. It's probably in the in the same star system. 
So they're like, hey, Vandekar, I'm, I'm going to give you the news. Vandekar attacked us. And um, sorry to tell you, but uh, your ship was a casualty. And, uh, you know, Kirk's like, what? What do you mean my ship's a casualty? It's it's still there. And, and they're like, well, yeah, we run our wars by computer. And um, in the attack, uh, your ship is listed as a casualty. <laughs> and, and they're like, what? So it turns out that th what this planet is doing, they have been in a five- hundred year long war with Vandekar and the the horrors of war take a toll when you know that's the whole point of it actually is to drive the enemy into either extinction or to the point where they can no longer offer any resistance and thus they surrender but this war has been going on for 500 years because what these two planets have decided to do is like look war is so horrible Let's just build these computers, and it will fight the war for us. And all it does is tell us, you know, who dies. And then these people will just go report to suicide chambers and disintegrate themselves. Easy peasy. So this is what these two plants have been doing for hundreds of years. And unfortunately, the Enterprise has been snagged in their war, you know, because of the treaty between these two worlds. MNER-7 is now obligated to destroy the Enterprise. Uh, or be in violation of the treaty, which is unthinkable because, you know, we don't want real war. So, so Kirk is, this is, <laughs> Kirk, this is being explained to Kirk and he's sort of like, eh? he's still like in denial and just like, no, you can't, what? No, that's not, we're not responsible for your agreement with, you know, uh, other worlds and how you fight your wars. And it's just like, your 500 people in your starship is not more important than the millions and millions of people on our planet and on, on Vandekar 7. So anyway, so th this is a rationalization. Now I'm going to just touch off onto a slight um, a slight political bent on this. I don't know. Um, the, uh, television in the 60s of America Mm -hmm. uh, had a very political bend to them, especially things like the um, the Smothers Brothers, and they got you know they got heat for being an, you know their anti-war stance. Star Trek was a little more subtle about this, but basically what it's saying is that if you make war too neat and tidy, yeah, you're not going to be you're not going to get the, uh, uh, the the populations riled up to end said war. Yeah. So it, I. It was a real, I mean, tip of the hat to Gene Roddenberry for his um, real subtle touch on uh, social moralities on, yeah. on things uh, for the Star Trek series. He really had his finger on the pulse when it came to, um, you know, certain issues. And mm -hmm. so when the, um, one of the things that's mentioned is that the computer tallies of the war dead in this episode? It, it was effectively a statement about the Vietnam War deaths that were uh, that began to be registered on the nightly newscasts in 1967. So yeah, it, I mean, you, you can't. I'm sure the government didn't want to say nothing, but yeah, you can see how how the, the political bend on such things. Yeah. All right, so. Um, Kirk is refusing to tell and order his ship to start beaming down the crew 
so they can be disposed of. He just flat out refused. Said, "Nope, not going to do it." And so he's in he's incarcerated with the with the rest of the landing party, and Aminiar Seven uh, creates a computer to duplicate Kirk's voice to send the order to the ship. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is uh, one of the episodes where it is established as far as the uh, order of succession, where when Spock and Kirk are not on the ship, Scotty is in command. It is also established that uh, Dr. Uh, Bones uh, is not in the order of command. And yeah. I know this has been brought up before, but I just think it bears repeating. Who who here can tell us real quick who is the fourth in succession? Correct. Yes. <laughs> Again, another tip of the hat to Gene Roddenberry. So, um, right. So the Scotty, he's got a bit of a real skeptic in him, and he isn't really kind of. He's like something's off about Kirk's orders, so he commands the ship's computer to analyze. Um, Kirk's uh, voice patterns or words or order and all that sort of stuff like that. And the computer reveals to him, yeah, no, that's that's fake. And so the ship is then under attack by uh, the planet. And, um, and the, you know, their, their shields are up. And so the ship doesn't suffer any damage. But um, another quick trivia on this episode, the planet uses sonic-based weapon systems, disruptors, which are uh, in the future episodes are the base weapon systems of the Klingons and the Romulans and what have yeah. you. So they mentioned that that that, that uh, the attacks uh, on the Enterprise from the planet, you know, are it's a sound-based weapon with uh, you know they said something like eighteen to the twelfth power or some such thing, which uh, those of you, uh, yeah, eighteen to the twelfth power. All right. So those of you that know about you know things that are sound based like music and stuff like that can who who can tell the class what's wrong with using a sound based weapon system on a spaceship? The vacuum of space, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, major plot hole there. <laughs> it's it's just it, it's it's but you know I uh, we'll, we'll we'll forgive them for that minor one. But another, there's other plot holes. Like, for example, Scotty tells uh, McCoy, we can't fire full phasers, our shields are up. Which, in other episodes, Enterprise has no problem um, uh, um, firing its weapons with shields up. And um, in the, uh, so ensuing, after the um, attack on the Enterprise, some communications are established, and Ambassador Fox, who's played by Gene Lyons, um, speaks with Anar Seven, who is the leader of, of the uh, um, Aminarians. God, that's a hard name to pronounce. And so all these apologies are going off like, oh, we're sorry, we got an error about who you identify. We're in a war right now, and it was a total mistake. I hope you can forgive us, and blah, blah, blah. Now, the ambassador is just... Like, oh, sure, we understand. Yeah, the mistakes happen, blah, blah, blah. But Scotty is not having a word of it. He is like, hell no. You know, so anyway, the uh, in the midst of that conversation, the leader of the, the planet kills the mic real quick. 
and he tells an underling the moment they drop their shields, open fire, and then he opens the mic up. So you can see the duplicitousness of the of of the the leadership of this planet. So Fox, the ambassador, ambassador is is all like, yes, he's uh, he just sees a feather in his cap of a diplomatic win. And so he's like, of course, uh, I'm willing to beam down to the planet and we'll negotiate relations between our, you know, the, the United Federation and your planet and blah, blah, blah. Everything will be fine. I assume I'll meet Captain Kirk, of course, once I beam down. And the guy's like, yeah, yeah, he'll be there. No problem. So he's making all these promises, which, of course, he has no intention of keeping. Anyway, so communications ended and Ambassador Fox pretty much orders Scotty that, uh, hey, uh, I expect you to, um, you know, relax your stance, enter into a non-combat, you know, stance, basically, ordering him to lower his shields. And Scotty just flat out tells him, nope, not going to do it. And, and, and that, you know, what? Uh, I, oh, so we don't need clip one. You just kind of described clip I'm, one. Bugger, did I just do that? I get so excited on these things. Yes, let's play the clip on, on how Scotty tells it to this guy. Okay, so I believe that's clip two. Open the channel, Lieutenant. This is the commander of the USS Enterprise. All cities and installations on Emenia 7. Oh, no, 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 that's no, not it. No, okay, that's never mind, it. never mind. So it must be clip one. Let that, me play that. I'm sorry, my clips are out of order. Uh, I don't know what... Ooh, which one is that one? No, I, uh, I put them in order of the, how you sent me the videos. I understand. I, I I sent the videos, and then I went over them to find out which one is... A, um, There's the... It's going to be the last one, then. The fourth uh, one. Let's just see what the third one is real quick first, just to, to make sure. Okay. Death. Nope. All right. Um, all right. Uh, shoot. Uh, let, let's just listen to the first one since we have a little bit of time and we'll figure it out. If it's not this, then we'll play the last one. Are those 500 people of yours more important than the hundreds of millions of innocent people on Aminyar and Vendikar? What kind of monster are you? I'm a barbarian. You said it yourself. I had hoped I had spoken only figuratively. Oh, no, you were quite accurate. I plan to prove it to you. All right, yeah, may, it must be the last one. I'm so, I, anyway, let, let's just play the last one. That, that doesn't seem right at all, so, but here. Mr. Ambassador, you will be speaking to Anon Seven, head of the High Council of the Armenian Union. Mr. Anon, this is Robert Fox, Special Ambassador for the United Federation of Planets. A great honor, Mr. Ambassador. We have a... Oops. Hang on. One second. Oh, seriously. Sorry, I, this clip is glitching Mr. out. Ambassador, there it is. You will be speaking to Anon Seven, head of the High Council of the Armenian Union. Mr. Anon, this is Robert Fox, Special Ambassador for the United Federation of Planets. A great honor, Mr. Ambassador. We have approached you openly 
with the intent of establishing formal and friendly relations between our peoples. But now, for some reason, you have attacked us. And apparently, you're holding several special representatives of our Federation. A mistake, Mr. Ambassador. We are at war. An error in our sensors indicated that your ship was about to attack us. I am giving orders that our attack be stopped. Now, as to your representatives, you have my sacred word as an Amenian that they are alive and well. Thank you. I thought perhaps it was all a mistake. Mr. Scott, disruptor beams are no longer hitting us. Maintain status, Mr. DePaul. We are most anxious to establish relations with you, Mr. Fox. We will make arrangements to receive you. The minute their screens are down, open fire. Yes, Counselor. I apologize deeply for the misunderstanding. These are trying times for us, you understand. I understand. Mr. Ainon, I uh, presume that you will have our ship's captain on hand when I beam down. He will be there, sir. I give you my word. I'm sure that from this day forward, your planet and our Federation will attain the deepest friendship. I look forward to seeing you. Diplomacy, gentlemen, should be a job uh, left to diplomats. You will, of course, immediately resume a peaceful status. No, sir. I will not. What did you say? I'll not lower the screens, not until the captain tells me to. You are taking orders from me. You will lower the screens as a sign of good faith. My authority. I know about your authority, but the screens stay up. Mr. Fox, they've faked a message from the captain. They've launched an attack against our ship. Now, you want us to trust them openly? I want you and expect you to obey my lawful orders. No, sir. I won't lower the screens. Your refusal to comply with my orders has endangered the entire success of this mission. I can have you sent to a penal colony for this. That you can, sir. But I won't lower the screens. Your name will figure prominently in my report to the Federation Central. There you go. Cool uh, side story on that moment uh, about James Doohan. So James uh, was in the uh, Royal Canadian Artillery as a lieutenant. And he had a visiting colonel show up and give an order during a training exercise to which... Um, James Doohan realized that if he followed through with his order, it would actually kill, you know, blowing some heads off of his own people. And he refused the order. Of course, the colonel, you know, people in command don't like it when you refuse orders and, you know, threatened, uh, you know, court martial and all that crap. But uh, uh, um, uh, Doohan's own superior offers, uh, officers backed him up on that and then he was eventually promoted to captain so uh yeah james Doohan, solid guy by all accounts that i've ever seen yeah so the uh ambassador um beams down to the planet of course another plot hole but the ship has to have, have drop its shields in order to transport somebody which all right so skip it yeah lots of plot holes anyway fox arrives at the on the planet gets taken into custody and is being 
dragged off to a disintegration chamber because, hey, <laughs> he's a casualty. But according to the computer, looks like everybody else on the Enterprise. So while that's going on, the uh, high-value prisoners like Kirk and Spock and the uh, other people were being, you know, held. And Spock being a, uh, <laughs> here's a funny one, a Vulcanian. This is one of the few episodes where his race is kind of used called a Vulcanian instead of a Vulcan. It's, hmm. uh, I, uh, yeah, so this is one of those moments. Anyway, so he uses his special mind powers to try and convince the guards of something distracting, what have you. So they overpower some guards. And the red shirts, and this is why I was going to talk about the red shirts real quick, they put on the uniforms of the planet's uh, uh, security people. And this is one of the few episodes where um, a red, red shirts don't die. It's because they change out of the red shirts. Oh, well, yeah, that, that, that's a fair argument. But, uh, yeah, it, 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 it's you expect them to die. You know, that, that's the joke. But uh, they kick ass. <laughs> they were they were totally in, in charge and in control. One of them's name is Mr. Osborne, I think, who was also in the Devil in the Dark episode. Hmm. And he didn't die in that one either. But uh... So, Spock, along with these two security guards, they're trying to go find the captain, who's still being held by uh, the leader. And, you know, trying. that's where you heard that discussion about, uh, you. I fully intend to show you how I'm going to be a barbarian. And in the process, Spock runs into and rescues uh, Ambassador Fox as he's trying to be uh, shoved into one of these uh, disintegrators. So they, they, they hold their guns on the, the disintegrator operators and say, oh, no, 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 back away. And they take Fox in, they destroy the disintegrator, and then they go off causing other general mayhem in the city, uh, you know, being the escape prisoners that mm -hmm. they are. So um, Kirk... Uh, the the, the uh, leadership of our Armenia is not happy, and they are pretty much um, they they tell Kirk, you know, you will order them to beam down, or we're gonna, you know, kill you. And he's like, yeah, well, I'm still not gonna do it. And so they decide they're going to threaten the Enterprise by by holding the the people hostage. Like, if you don't start sending people down, we're gonna kill the prisoners. Now, when they open up, oh, this is where uh, something comes up that in, in one of the audio clips. Uh, yes. Here we go. This should be clip one from me. Okay. This is what Kirk does Are in this moment. 500 people of yours more important than the hundreds of millions of innocent people on a mean yarn vendicar? What kind of monster are you? I'm a barbarian. You said it yourself. I had hoped I had spoken only figuratively. Oh, no, you were quite accurate. I plan to prove it to you. Open a channel to the Enterprise. You give me no choice, Captain. We are not bandits. You force us to act as bandits. This is the USS Enterprise. Scotty, General Order 24, two hours. In two hours. Enterprise, this is Anand Seven, first councilman of the High Council of Iminyar. 
We hold your captain, his party, your ambassador, and his party prisoners. Unless you immediately start transportation of all personnel aboard your ship to the surface, the hostages will be killed. You have 30 minutes. All that means is that I won't be around for the destruction. You heard me give General Order 24. That means in two hours, the Enterprise will destroy Emenia 7. Planetary defense system, open fire on the Enterprise. I'm sorry, Councilman. The target has moved out of range. <laughs> you wouldn't do this. Hundreds of millions of people. I didn't start it, Council. But I'm liable to finish it. There you go. Uh, that gives me chills. I just love how uh, Kurt's ready to just say, like, all right, you really want the terror of war? I'm going to bring it right to your doorstep. You know, flaming bag of poo and everything. So um, I, I don't know if... I, I, and one of the clips I requested was from uh, the 42nd mark to the minute 13. Did, were you able to get that one? I think that should be... Um, uh, was it Scotty or Kirk? Oh, no. It's Scotty. The first 40 seconds. That should be clip I two. I think that's clip two. Excellent. Open the channel, Lieutenant. This is the commander of the USS Enterprise. All cities and installations on Emenyar 7 have been located, identified, and fed into our fire control system. In one hour and 45 minutes, the entire inhabited surface of your planet will be destroyed. You have that long to surrender your hostages. What can I do? Somebody. It is it is priceless to, to me. I mean, first of all, it sounds like uh, the uh, Enterprise is kind of violating one of the prime directives of not interfering with another planet's uh, uh, life, mm -hmm. what have you. And now it's threatening to just wipe out all life, <laughs> which interesting that they would have that order in something conveniently called General Order 24. There are a number of other general orders, but I'll skip over that. I see my time is short. Um, so basically, I'll, I'll wrap it up. So the... Um, um, Spock eventually frees Kirk. They take control of the uh, leadership's uh, area when that is where the computers that run the war are held. Spock explains it in a nutshell, what is the, um, uh, th how the system works, and when you destroy this one computer, they'll all chain, chain self-destruct. That's, that's it. And Kirk's like, okay. And they pull out their phasers, blow it up, and everything blows up. And now the leadership on Mars 7 He's like, what have you done? You've condemned us to the horrible da da da. And Kirk lays it out for him. Just like, well, well, true, but maybe the other people are feeling the same way. And uh, maybe you'll finally make peace instead of making war so tidy and neat. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I thought it was, it's a very, it's a classic Star Trek episode. And uh, Ambassador Fox offers his services to be an ambassador between the two nation uh, planets to, to smooth things over. He has some experience in that. And, uh, it's, it, it has an ultimate happy ending, but uh, it, I, I thought it, it's a classic Star Trek episode that talks about, you know, the evils of war and how nasty it is. And um, 
uh, I'll just wrap up with this. It is unfortunate that um, the powers that be that, that are in this country have learned the hard lesson that when you force uh, the, the, the population to endure the hardships of war, like back in Vietnam, the people don't like it. They rise up and protest and that kind of crap. And yeah. so they've learned to, instead of doing um, a, a, a draft, they just have a, a voluntary force, and that is comprised of the poor, and they go off to die. And that way, it doesn't cause the, the protests. There's still protests, but not to the level that Vietnam was. Yeah. And so now that our country is, in effect, having these clean wars, which is a sad way of phrasing it, but... Uh, I hate to end it on a down note. I, there's so much trivia we should talk about, but I see my time's really in that. So. Yeah, so anyway, we got to go to the break. We'll be right back with more right after this. It's dangerous, but it might work. It's going to be a good night. Cleveland, Ohio. A land of strange rituals. The savage horrors of fearsome mutated beasts. Back from the dead. Kept alive by experimental science. Science runs amok when human beings tamper with unknown forces. Now at last, the real shocking story can be told. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. A nightmare combination of shock and terror, and you're invited. A foolish undertaking. Something evil. They think they'll be the good They're wrong as you feel. Nobody beats me. Not recommended for impressionable children. Mm, sorry, Michelle, that clip was really too bad. Nobody beats the devil. Welcome back to the show. Uh, thank you, Miles, for a little bit of Star Trek trivia. And uh, now we're going to get back into X-Files before Joe gets to uh, some Alfred Hitchcock next hour. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, we'll wait for that to peter out a little bit. And all. Yeah, Ooh, Michelle's well. here. Yeah. So, uh... I can't hear. I can't oh. hear anything at the moment. I can peter back up. Oh, okay. Well, I'll buy some time by playing a little bit of the, uh, the X-Files, uh, audio in the background there. I don't think they'll get us, ding us for, uh playing that uh, for not paying royalties as long as my voice is over top of it. Uh, but yeah, so um, and uh, we've got uh, but yeah, uh, Joe, you're going to be talking about Hitchcock later. Oh, yes, Sir Alfred Hitchcock. Yes. Knight of the British Empire. Yes. Very nice. So um, but, uh, but yeah, so, um, uh, Miles, was there any other trivia you wanted to add while Michelle is, uh, getting things up and running there that you didn't get to mention? Sure. Uh, there were a few. I actually hit most of them, but, uh, I hit the artillery one, third in command, Vulcanians. I know I, I got the list here. I'm going real quick through it as I just, uh, find the ones that, that I missed. Oh, George Takei was not in the episode at all. Uh, oh, here we go. Twilight Zone connection. So, uh, Amar Seven was played by an uh, actor named of uh, David 
Opatoshu, which I apologize if I butchered his name. He and James Doohan were both in a Twilight Zone episode called Valley of Shadow. Ah. And the um, the Valley of Shadow episode, uh, it was set in a hidden town which contained force fields, molecular disassembly reassembly devices, huh. and matter replicators, which, gosh, I, I wonder where that technology came from. Who got uh, uh, Hitchcock? <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe not. Maybe Star Trek. I don't think so. Yeah, uh, Michelle, are you back up and running there? Uh, she is uh, trying to get back in right now. Discord's giving her some issues. Okay. And uh, well, but- why don't why don't we just uh, go ahead and uh, we'll flip flop and we'll do uh, Hitchcock uh, this hour while she works on that. So, uh, Joe, you ready to get into a little uh, little Hitchcock here, and we'll, we'll do give the same. Sure, same, sure. Let's go. Let's same do the march, the funeral march of the marionettes. There you go. All right. So we're going to be talking about a few of uh, Hitchcock's classic films tonight. But uh, mm-hmm. did you have anything you wanted to add about Alfred Hitchcock Presents? Any? Uh, did you used to watch that on a regular basis? I did as a kid. I never missed it. I don't remember a single episode. But I always remembered his his shadow going into his uh, pencil sketch outline while we listened to the funeral march of the Marian. Uh, yeah. So that was a, a childhood memory of mine. Uh, I grew up with Alfred Hitchcock and watching him um, and Alfred Hitchcock presents. But boy, he had quite a quite a movie career. He sure uh, did. He wanted to be an engineer, uh, but uh, his plans were spoiled as a, a young man when his father died at age 52 of kidney disease. Oh, geez. Uh, yeah, and uh, so he was, uh, by then his older brothers and sister, brothers had left, so... He took a job uh, as a clerk at a uh, theater, <laughs> and uh, so begins a legend uh, of Alfred Hitchcock. Um, he had many, many uh, uh, jobs uh, in theater. He was convinced by David O. Selznick to move to Hollywood, and uh, his career took off from there. I thought yeah. the best way to, to cover Alfred Hitchcock would be to look at I picked six of my favorite films of his yeah and lot, I thought we'd do my, them a lot of my personal favorites in here too okay good and I thought we'd do it in chronological order um, and we'd discuss a little bit of the plots and a little bit of the sidelights of the uh, of the movies so the first Alfred Hitchcock movie that uh I chose, and we're going again. We're going in chronological order. Is a, a 1954 film called Rear Window. All right. Uh, okay. Uh, so if you want to play the trailer, and then we'll discuss. You got it. Rear Window coming up with uh, one of uh, uh, James Stewart. James Stewart. I think this is the scene of the crime, a crime of passion, filmed in a way you have never seen before. And as no one else would dare attempt, but the screen's master of suspense, 
the producer-director who shocked the world with Psycho. This is the apartment of a man named Jeffries, a news photographer whose beat used to be the world. Right now, his world has shrunk down to the size of this window. He's been watching the people across the way. Nobody seems to pull their blinds during a hot spell like this. He knows a lot about them by now. Too much, perhaps. For instance, down there on the second floor, the woman pacing about. He calls her Miss Lonely Hearts. So lonely that even death seems like a friend. These are the newlyweds on a honeymoon no one will ever forget. He calls her Miss Hearing Aid, an artist of a very odd and strange art. The songwriter who plays the same melody over and over again. A genius or insane? This is the traveling salesman and his invalid wife. Out of their arguments and nagging comes a weird kind of love. Miss Torso, the body beautiful, that is, viewed from a safe distance. Those are just a few of my neighbors. First I watched them just to kill time, but then I couldn't take my eyes off them, just as you won't be able to. And you won't be able to take your eyes off the glowing beauty of Grace Kelly, who shares the heart and curiosity of James Stewart in this story of a romance shadowed by the terror of a horrifying secret. Did you notice something interesting about that trailer? How they they plugged Psycho, which didn't come out until four years later. So this must have been a a a later trailer that came around after the success of Psycho to try and get his movies a second run, some of his movies a second run in the theater. I I think you're right, and it sure makes sense. So. Uh, the plot was, like, was interesting. Huh? Yeah. Go ahead. I was just saying because I was like, I was like, wait a minute, they're mentioning Psycho, and this was 1954, and I looked it up, and I was like, yep, dude, right, sure enough, right, because Psycho didn't come along until 1960, so right, this must be because they did a lot of this with uh, re-releases and and uh, home video. Yeah. So it, it it was hard. Sometimes these trailers, uh, I don't think that was the theatrical trailer. Uh, I think well, it it sounded like a really old trailer. That's the thing—the voiceover and, yeah. and production on it. It's definitely a, a, a trailer from the '60s or something like that. I think, and it, I think they probably did it for second runs. And if you notice, James Stewart breaks the fourth wall there for yeah. a moment, which uh, he also did in uh, "The Man Who Knew Too Much," which we'll discuss later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the plot, uh, the plot. The plot line is pretty uh, interesting. So he's his leg is broken. He's recuperating. He's bored. He's looking out his window down on the square there, watching all his neighbors who have all their windows open. 
It's a red hot summer like now. And uh, like he said, he had nicknames for all the all the people that he watched, and they all had their own little quirks. But the one that got him was Raymond Burr. Raymond Burr. Oh, yeah. Who was a traveling salesman and had a, <laughs> they described his wife as terrible, as an invalid. Uh, oh, God. She was bedridden. Okay. So, um, and then he notices that uh, one night uh, he hears a woman saying, no, no, don't do it, don't do it. And then she disappears. And he suspects that the guy murdered her because he sees her, sees him taking uh, a lot of suitcases out of the house and cleaning a saw and a, uh, a knife, a handsaw and a knife. <laughs> Seems so. perfectly natural. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, he gets suspicious. Uh, so he calls a, a detective friend of his, his detective friend of his, his comes up. He, the police investigate. They find nothing really suspicious. They say she's really in upstate New York. No, no problem. But it is, it is that he doesn't, he doesn't buy it. Uh, and he notices there, there was a dog down in the in, down down on the, the square that used to like dig up flower beds and blah blah blah. So he figures, ah, he buried, and they find the dog dead of a broken neck. So Ooh. now he's thinking, ah, he buried the murder weapons there, and he didn't want the dog digging them up. Finding poor him. dog. Yeah. So um, he enlists his nurse who uh, is played by uh, uh, Thelma Ritter and and his fiancée, Grace Kelly, uh, to uh, do a little snooping around the neighborhood. So um, he sends Grace Kelly down to uh, and, and his nurse to dig up the, the yard. They didn't find anything. So while they're down there, he didn't expect this, but Grace Kelly sneaks into the guy's apartment and catches her. So he notices this and uh, calls the police and said there's a robbery in progress. And they ended up arresting his fiance, but it saved her life. <laughs> uh, all in all, uh, what happens later is that uh, uh, one thing leads to another. Um, while she's being arrested by the cops, she points to her ring finger where she's wearing the dead woman's wedding ring. And she looks up at the window and Raymond Burr notices this and he says, aha. That guy's watching me, and this is a setup. So, um, you know, and, and and Jim Stewart, Jamie Jim Stewart, he he uh, catches on to this. So he he calls his friend, the detective, again. He said, uh, "I know he did it." You know, blah blah blah. And he tells him all the things that he, he figured out. And uh, he said, "Call me, call me." And then when the phone call gets back. He tells him everything he knows, and then he realizes he's not talking to his friend detective. He's talking to Raymond Burr. And now Raymond Burr knows he knows everything, and he goes up to his apartment to kill him. And Raymond Burr was a pretty imposing guy. Big, big guy. Yeah, he was tall. Yeah. So So he goes up there, and uh, but police get there in time. Save him. He confesses to the uh, to the murder, and um, that's more or less the end of the story. And all the all the little people he was watching, like uh, Miss Torso, her f- boyfriend comes back uh-huh. from the war, and she gives up her life partying. And the woman who was going to commit suicide, uh, Miss Lonely Heart, falls starts dating the musician, and 
the couple that lost the dog get a little puppy and everybody's happy. And he has two broken legs because in the confrontation with Raymond Burr, Raymond Burr pushed him out the window. <laughs> and, and he broke his leg, but his fall was broken by the police. So. Yeah. That was the ending to the movie. And uh, very interesting. Uh, you know, again, Hitchcock at his best. One you of know, his... Uh, yeah, it's mm-hmm. a, it's, a, it's a classic, and uh, the there was a great remake uh, of Rear mm-hmm. Window with uh, Christopher Reeve after his mm-hmm. his accident uh, that left mm-hmm. him uh, quadriplegic. Um, mm-hmm. This movie also uh, reminds me of a, a film that uh, well, it, I believe it's the inspiration for a movie called Civic Duty that came out in two thousand six, starring Peter Krause, who was in Six Feet Under. Great movie, um, and it's kind of uh, it's uh, well the the Wikipedia says the plot is the film is about an American accountant bombarded with cable news and the media's obsession with terrorist plots post in, in the post nine eleven world, and he receives a jolt when an unattached Islamic graduate student moves in next door, so he starts doing rear window kind of stuff and spying on him and is convinced that the guy's a terrorist. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's almost kind of like the uh, it, it's the same kind of plot structure, but uh, right. different outcome. So, but it's a good movie. I recommend it. Civic Duty. Check it out. Yes, yes, and and um, here's what Spielberg told Bob one time. You know, there's nothing new. We just keep doing the same thing over and redoing it. Yeah. So, you know, uh, nominated for best director in this picture, uh, best adapted screenplay. Best Cinematography, Color, and Best Sound Recording. There you go. Next, we have The Man Who Knew Too Much, 1956. All right, here we go. When I was just a little boy, I asked my mother, what will I be? You'll make a fine doctor. Will I be handsome? Will I be rich? Here's what she said to me. When are we going to have another baby? You're the doctor. You have all the answers. Yeah, but this is the first time I've ever heard the question. Mommy, look, come here! What will be, will be. Come on. We're being watched. What? Oh, come on. Hello. Dr. McKenna. This is Dr. McKenna. Who's this? If you tell even one word, your little boy will be in serious danger. You have a very nice little boy, madame. His safety will depend upon you tonight. tourist. I'm traveling for pleasure. I somehow got involved in this very unfortunate incident and I came here to make a simple statement of fact and not be subjected to a police grilling. Hey, 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 hey,
you go. Okay, so the plot line on this one, if you don't know it by now, uh, a prominent American couple, he's a physician, she's a famous singer, played by Doris Day and Jimmy Stewart, are in Morocco for vacation with their son Hank. And what happens is they get involved and enmeshed into a international assassination plot. What a and fun vacation. While on vacation. Yeah, don't go on vacation in Morocco. It happens all the time. <laughs> yes, well, in Morocco. Anyway, uh, basically, uh, they get involved in a terror plot. I won't go into the details of how they get into this. But uh, he, he uh, unsuspectedly and unwillingly finds out about what is going on through a, a French spy. Uh, this involves him. So in the uh, ensuing chaos, his son is kidnapped and uh, ends up in an embassy where the police can't go because it's uh, sovereign ground. So Jimmy Stewart somehow uh, saves the life of the person who's to be assassinated, who was a prime minister, and... Uh, he, in turn, in, does a favor for Jimmy Stewart and gets them an invitation into that embassy so they can attend the party and try to find his son. And the way they do that is by Doris Day singing Que Sera Sera very loudly, hoping that her son was there and hear the song and respond. <laughs> he does, and he does. He starts singing back, and Jimmy Stewart finds him. And the end of the film, they save his son, and all the bad guys are exposed. Well, what do you know? So. Yes. So very. It was a. It was actually uh, uh, supposed to, you know, be like a. Uh, well, it was a. It was a suspense, suspense thriller. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's. It, it, Hitchcock gave uh, Francois Truffaut a, a book-length interview, and in it, he uh, Francois Truffaut said that aspects of the remake uh, uh the man who knew too much because the original was also done by hitchcock in 1934 i think it was okay uh hitchcock uh, uh Truffaut says well the remake was far superior to the original and hitchcock replied let's say the first version is the work of a talented amateur and the second was made by a professional well there you go que sera so sera wins best song at the academy awards uh, mm -hmm. Little trivia. Cindy Fontaine is a singer, a little singer in this uh, movie. Was played by one person you might know, Carolyn Jones. Oh, okay, yeah, the Partridge Family. Oh, I love her. Yes. So there you go. Our next one. Uh, hope well, we get this it's in. it's break time. Wanna... Yeah. Okay. So we'll we'll continue after there. we we come to the break. Uh, okay. But yeah. So uh, but we have uh, another mythical moment from. Uh, Mr. Adam Hebert uh, coming Excellent. up for you. This one is, um, uh, if any fans of Clash of the Titans, I think, will appreciate this one. But yes, hang tight. We'll be right back with lots more Alfred Hitchcock. And then we'll get to our X-Files hour at the end. We'll be right back. Laugh a while you can, monkey boy. For Radio for Humans, and it came from Cleveland, this is Adam Hebert with Mythical Moment 16, Perseus and Medusa, 
totally stoned. Our story starts, as most Greek myths do, with Zeus not being able to keep it in his toga. His interest this time was the lovely Danae, the only child of King Acrisius of Argos. When Acrisius was disappointed in his lack of a male heir, he visited the oracle at Delphi and was told that Danae's son would one day kill him. To ensure she never had a son, he locked Danae up in a bronze room with no obvious way in or out, save for the ancient Greek equivalent of a skylight. But this didn't deter the wily Zeus, who turned himself into a golden shower, not that kind perverts, and entered through said skylight, taking Danae as his lover. Soon, Danae was pregnant and gave birth to a son, whom she named Perseus. When Acrisius found out about this, not only did he crap figurative bricks, but he also had mother and son locked into a chest and thrown into the sea, stating that her fate would be to the gods to decide, not him. Poseidon, god of the sea, guided mother and son to the island of Seraphos, where they were taken in by the fisherman Dictus. There, Perseus grew to manhood, and Danae eventually caught the eye of the wicked brother of Dictus, Polydectes, who was king of Sephiros. Perseus, being a good son, protected his mother from the king's advances, and so Polydectes came up with an idea to get rid of Perseus. He announced he intended to seek the hand of a princess from a nearby city-state, invited all to come to a banquet, where it was the tradition to bring gifts to such events. When Perseus arrived without a gift, he was mocked by Polydectes. Brash, Perseus angrily said he would give the king any gift he wanted, he only had to name it. Realizing that he had Perseus where he wanted him with his masterful baiting skills, he demanded the head of Medusa. Medusa was a gorgon whose gaze could turn all into stone. Perseus was headstrong and brash, and his promise would, Polydectes figured, cost Perseus his life, and then he would be able to get his freak on. Perseus accepted this request. Perseus set out, and was immediately confronted with several problems. First, how to find Medusa. Second, how to get to where she was. Third, how to get her head. And fourth, how to get back. Thankfully, while Zeus wasn't father of the year, he did actually love his children, mostly. And so he had several members of the Greek pantheon lend Perseus items to help. Hermes lent Perseus his winged sandals to Talaria. Athena, her polished metal shield. Hades, his helmet of darkness. Hephaestus forged Perseus a sword of adamantine. Finally, Perseus was given a special sack to put the head in. They told him where to find Medusa, and off he went. Soon Perseus arrived on a secluded item the Gorgons called their home and he eventually found Medusa and her two immortal sisters sleeping in a cave. Using Athena's shield as a mirror, he carefully approached the Gorgons and beheaded Medusa with his sword. He quickly snatched up her head and put it in the bag, but the other two Gorgons woke up and gave chase. He put on Hades' helmet of darkness and flew off using the winged sandals. On the way back to Seraphus, he managed to save the beautiful Princess Andromeda, who had been chained to a rock as a sacrifice for a ravenous monster, and he took her as his wife before returning to Seraphos. There, he returned to Polydectes' grand hall, only to find the wicked king had married his mother in his absence. Outraged at this betrayal, he told Danae to close her eyes. Once he knew that his mother and his adopted grandfather were safe, he reached into the bag and pulled out the head of Medusa. Polydectes gasped in horror as he and everyone else in the hall were turned to stone, save those who didn't look. With his mother safe, Perseus decided that it was time to claim his birthright and return to Argos. While he had no true ill will towards his grandfather, Acrisius was terrified when he heard of Perseus returning. He quickly abdicated his throne and went into exile, seeking sanctuary in a nearby city-state. Several years later, the father of the king of that city-state died, 
and funerary games were held in his honor, as was the custom. Perseus, as the king of Argos, was invited to compete. Perseus participated in the discus competition, and it was then that fate intervened to fulfill the oracle. He threw the discus, but it feared off course and struck a man in the audience. When a healer went to attend to the poor man with Perseus at his side, Perseus was horrified to find that was Grandfather Acrisius, struck dead by the Erzat's discus. Prophecy had been fulfilled. For Radio for Humans, and it came from Cleveland, this is Adam Hebert reminding you that of all the shapes Zeus can take, a golden shower really was one of them. Back to you, Kenny. Background music is Medieval Fantasy Adventure by Alexander Nakarada, who can be found at www.serpentsoundstudios.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 License. Thanks, Alexander. Don't you know that alcohol is a lubricant for the devil? Sure do, and I'm just about due for an oil change. Yeah, I'm just about due. About 9 o'clock, maybe. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, welcome back. Uh, Michelle, you got your technical uh, issues sorted out? Well, I hope so. Eh, keeping an eye on the storm. It's it's being a it's being a pest. <laughs> Understood. So anyway, welcome back uh of course to Miles as well. Uh hopefully Yes. Hello. Everything is uh working out hunky dory. Um and uh Joe, yeah, I guess it's time we got to get back into some uh some Hitchcock here. So what what was another uh film you picked out for everybody tonight? Okay, we're up to 1958, Vertigo. All right. So, uh, want to play that trailer? Yeah, let me get that. Vertigo, a feeling of dizziness, a swimming in the head. Figuratively, a state in which all things seem to be engulfed in a whirlpool of terror, as created by Alfred Hitchcock in the story that gives new meaning to the word suspense. Someone inside me, she says I must die. You don't let me go. A beautiful girl haunted by the desperate, unexplainable urge to destroy herself. A man possessed by the paralyzing vertigo that made him afraid of high places. Easy now. I know, I know. Ah, this is a cinch. I look up, I look down. I look up, I look... What was the strange attraction that brought these two together in spite of the dark forces that tore them apart? The specter from the past that drew her to the ancient headstone in the mission graveyard. The compulsion that drove her relentlessly to the point of no return. The story of a love so powerful it broke down all barriers between past and present, between life and death, between the golden girl in the dark tower and the tawdry redhead that he tried to remake in her image. I let you change me. Will that do it? If I do what you tell me, will you love me? Yes. Right? Right, then I'll do it. Because I don't care anymore about me. 
another James Stewart uh, yes. film. Yeah, so uh, I'm going to go through this real quickly. I know we're short on time. Uh, we have uh, Jim Stewart playing uh, John Scotty Ferguson, who is a former police detective, uh, forced off the force because uh, of an incident in the line of duty that caused him to develop acrophobia and vertigo. Uh, he's hired by an acquaintance, a man named Gavin Eister, uh, as a private investigator to follow his wife. What we don't know is that his wife is actually dead. He had murdered her. And the person he's following is actually Kim Novak, an impersonator of his wife. And the whole reason they're doing this elaborate scheme is so that uh, Jimmy Stewart follows Kim Novak uh, and um, thinking it's his wife. Eventually, she is supposedly acting oddly. She goes up to a bell tower and... uh, apparently commits suicide and uh you know all this is uh to cover up the murder what actually happened was kim novak went up to to the bell tower but actually the man uh the man who hired uh, jimmy stewart was there with his wife's body and threw that off the bell tower (laughs) and and, uh later on jimmy stewart catches on to this uh, whole plot and it gets really messy um and, uh, you know, eventually uh, Eisner, uh, Eister uh, gets away. And um, actually, they had to shoot a, 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 an alternate sh- ending to this film because in the end, uh, in the end of the f- actual film that you see, uh, Kim Novak runs up to the bell tower. Uh, Jimmy Stewart overcomes his vertigo, goes up to talk to her and tell her that he still loves her and doesn't and and she she was going to tell him all about the plot and while all this is going on a shadowy figure appears and it turns out to be a nun and she gets scared thinking it's the the murderer and she backs out and accidentally gets out of the bell tower oh boy <laughs> so, yeah so that's the end of the movie uh but there was an alternate ending in that um the, the the, the production code administration of the, of the motion picture industry said there was no uh, resolution of the crime that, and, and it was always the codes, the movie codes idea that the crime has to be paid for. There has to be retribution. Yeah. Uh, this was one of the, this was one of the hits on it's a wonderful life because in that the Potter never was brought to trial for re- embezzlement really. Mm-hmm. stealing the money right so uh in this case they they made hitchcock shoot an, an alternate scene where uh, uh kim novak and jimmy stewart are listening to a radio and there's the announcer comes on and says you know that i was caught in europe blah 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 but hitchcock didn't want to show that one so he made a lot of uh, uh, uh he made a lot of uh he gave into a lot of demands which toned down the erratic illusions in the film mm-hmm. and a lot of the footage was cut so that uh they could chuck that alternate and you you see the original shot so okay. uh a little bit of trivia uh the manager of the mckintock hotel in this movie was ellen orby ring a bell okay. no it doesn't grandma gra- grandma oh. okay oh okay yeah 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 so there you go. Now we'll go on to North by and, North. Oh, go ahead. 
And uh, the opening title sequence um, makes the f it. This is the first movie to use computer graphics. Very good. Very good. Really, oh, I did not know that. So, uh, hang on. Next, one we second. go to 1959. Uh, one sec here. Uh, let me get to the. Uh, North by Northwest is not here. I have Psycho and the Birds. I apologize if I missed it, but I had the, the I had the six with the Hitchcock Presents, so I think I got mixed up. Okay, that's okay. We can do a quick quick recap on North by Northwest. Uh, basically, uh, it's a spy thriller that really, at the time, this was the time when the Bond books, Ian Fleming was becoming you know big, and they were doing. Uh, starting to do the movie the james bond movies and this was mm -hmm. like a little attempt to get involved in that spy stuff yeah and and again it's a it's a it's a thriller uh where somebody uh a, a, a case of missing uh mistaken identity mm -hmm. uh poor poor carrie grant uh causes him to get involved into a spy plot <laughs> And um, all of a sudden, he's being pursued by all these people that he doesn't know or know why. But they mistake him for somebody else because of a little glitch in a restaurant. And it turns out that he spends the whole movie uh, trying to get away from these people who try to kill him with a biplane that crashes yeah. into a, a truck. Uh Ends up on Mount Rushmore, almost falling off Mount Rushmore. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so th that's that's basically the uh, the plot of this movie. And uh, he turns into a reluctant spy, you know, just because uh, somebody mistook him for somebody else. Uh, sound what? like uh, the man who knows much? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. So... Uh, yeah, so that's that. That's uh, how North North by Northwest goes. Of course, there's that famous scene with the biplane oh, chasing yeah. him. Can't forget <laughs> you that. know, and uh, there's a there's there's one uh, little uh, the, the film's title is reported to be influenced by the name of a popular annual music festival that was called South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. Yeah. Uh, which, uh, so, so, uh, the third episode, and this is a little trivia, the third episode of Doctor Who back in 1976 mm -hmm. includes an homage to North by Northwest when, uh, Doctor Who, who like Hitchcock's, Hitchcock's, uh, hero is falsely accused of a politically motivated murder and is attacked by gun, by gunfire, by a biplane piloted by one of, uh, his enemy's henchman. So they gave a little homage in 1976 to this film in Doctor Who. I think I remember uh, that. You do remember? I think I remember seeing that episode, yeah. Yes. I think anytime you see a biplane trying to swoop in over a person, you know where that came from. Yeah, for uh, sure. North by Northwest was nominated for three Academy Awards, Best Film Editing, Best Art Direction, and Set Direction. Well, why not? Uh, best color and best original screenplay. Uh, it won three of those awards, but 
three some of the awards went to Ben Hur of that year and Pillow Talk. <laughs> so oh, that's boy. who he was competing with. Pillow Talk. <laughs> yeah, how about that, huh? Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, the next one, I think everybody probably knows this plot. Psycho, 1960. Here we have a quiet little motel, when in fact it has now become known as the scene of the crime. You have a vacancy? Oh, we have 12 vacancies. You know, this is the first place it looks like it's hiding from the world. I think that we're all in our private traps, clamped in them. And none of us can ever get out. Is anyone at home? Oh, that, that, uh, that must be my mother. Is anything wrong? missing so much as she's run away. Put me down. Mother, oh God, mother! What are you running away from? She looked like a wrong one to you. It's not as if she were a, a maniac. She just goes a little mad sometimes. She wouldn't even harm a fly. There you go. Oh, boy. Psycho. Well, anyway. As we know, Janet Leigh, who plays Marion Crane in this, is uh, uh, the girlfriend of uh, Sam Loomis, who is played by John Gavin. And... Problem is, they can't get married because Sam isn't making any money. So, uh, you know, but she works as a uh, secretary for a real estate agent. And he gives her 40 grand to put in the bank. And instead, she decides to take off with the 40 grand and meet up with her boyfriend. And maybe they would use it to uh, get married. Mm -hmm. And uh, on the way, she gets uh, uh, tired and she stops at the Bates Motel. And I guess a few things happen there at the Bates Motel. A couple things. A couple things. First of all, she meets Norman, and uh, he invites her to dinner. And uh, But apparently, Norman's mother is very domineering and doesn't like any men around his, her, her, her son. So um, while uh, Janet Lee is taking a shower um something happened i i I think we saw that in in the film where she she slipped on a bar she slipped on a bar of soap bar of soap hits her head yes so this this wigged shadowy figure stabs her to death in the shower uh because uh mother he really was his mother's alter ego yes uh during the dinner the night before he confesses to her that he's interested in taxidermy. I wonder how that worked out for him. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, there's an inve- police investigation, and uh, some policemen get killed by uh, <laughs> Norman Bates. It gets kind of messy. Uh, until, finally, uh, they realize uh, that uh, they find out that until Sam and and a, a friend of his is trying to figure out what happened. Uh, they find out from local sheriff that uh, Norman Bates's mother died ten years earlier in a murder suicide, and so they think that she was alive. And I guess she's not. They find the mummified body, and Norman Bates comes in to kill them. But uh, you know they catch him in the end, and he ends up in. And the film ends with uh, the uh, with. Janet Lee's car, who was uh, part of the what Norman Bates did, he killed her and he put his her body in her car and put it in the swamp. The end of the movie, there mm-hmm. and her car out of the swamp. Uh, the moral of this story was: don't say at the Bates Motel. Yeah, definitely. You not. know, at least not for a long time. Uh, this is based on. Uh, Robert Block's novel of the same name, okay? Yeah. Um, and it's based on a real real life murder case. Grave robber Ed Gein. You might have heard of him if you're into serial yeah. killers. Yeah, there was Ooh, a yeah. there's a couple movies okay. based on Ed Gein. Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is actually one that's there you based go. on Gein. There you go. The only thing is they say that Gein was apprehended after only two killings. Yeah. Uh, unlike Norman uh, but Hitchcock acquired the rights to this novel for how much? $9,500. Oh, geez. And when he bought the novel, he ordered his assistant to go out and buy every copy. <laughs> so none of the novel's surprises would be spoiler alerts. Wow. Yes, yes. Man, and one more little thing. The murder of Lee's character in the shower. Mm-hmm. Uh... There's a lot of myths and rumors about that. It, it was shot over a period of days, December 17th through the 23rd in 1959, after Janet Lee had twice postponed the film. First, she had a cold, then she got her period. So they finished the scene, runs about three minutes, but it took those many days to film it. And uh, there's a lot of cuts in that, in that scene. Mm-hmm. And when he was talking to Truffaut in that book about the scene, he said there were 70 camera setups for that 45 seconds of Wow. And he also said there were 78 cuts of that film for that scene. Oh, wow. Yeah. Crazy. Yes. It it was absolutely an amazing scene. Uh, Redone in High anxiety, <laughs> if you recall, with the newspaper. Your newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your newspaper. You beat him in the head. So that was uh, that was probably I don't know my favorite of all his films, Psycho. Uh yeah, you know, and I'll tell you what, the sequel to that wasn't bad too. The from the eighties. Uh, yeah, it was pretty good. So I never saw that. Yeah, I know, but obviously, you know, Hitchcock wasn't involved for because he was dead. Uh, but uh, the sequel to it was really good. Anthony Perkins did a really good job. 
Uh, and you know, there's a series now, Norman Bates. You know that Bates Motel. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a current series, so uh, that's going on too. So finally, we're up to 1963, and tweet tweet the boys. Tweet 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 the boys. Someone there? Who is it? Look. Pitch, this isn't usual, is it? We've been out back looking at the chickens. Something seems to be wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with those chickens, Mitch. That's the damnest thing I ever saw. I don't know. It seemed to swoop down at you deliberately. Birds are not aggressive creatures, miss. They bring beauty into the world. It is mankind, rather, who insists upon making it difficult for life to exist upon this planet. I mean, birds just don't go around attacking people without no reason. You know what I mean? I think we're in real trouble. Huh? I don't know how this started or why, but I know it's here and we'd be crazy to ignore it. To ignore what? The bird war? Yes, the bird war, the bird attack play. Call it what you like. They're massing out there someplace and they'll be back. You can count on it. I keep telling you, this isn't a few birds. These are gulls, crows, swifts. I have never known birds of different species to flock together. The very concept is unimaginable. Why, if that happened, we wouldn't have a chance. Get yourselves guns and wipe them off the face of the earth. Thus said the Lord God unto the mountains and the hills and the rivers and the valleys. Behold, I, even I, shall bring a sword upon you, and I will devastate your high places. Doesn't it seem odd that they'd wait all that time to start a, a war against humanity? What do you think they were after? I think they were after the children. For what purpose? To kill them. And eat their bird seed. And eat the bird seed. <laughs> well, this stars Tippi Hedren. You might remember her as yep. Melanie Griffith's mother, right? Mm-hmm. Rod Taylor, Jessica Tandy, and... Veronica Cartwright. Yeah, Veronica, Veronica Cartwright. What what was she? She was a little girl in the film. Because the plot line goes pretty much like this. Um, that uh, Rod Taylor uh, sees saw Tippi Hedren in a court case where uh, some practical joke went wacky and somebody was suing somebody. And he recognizes her in a, in a pet store and approaches her and pulls a practical joke on her just to give her a lesson. And when she asked why he was in the pet store to begin with, uh, he says to buy two lovebirds for his 11-year-old uh, his 11-year-old sister, uh, K- Kathy, uh, played by Veronica Cartwright, who later got killed by an alien. Right? Yes. <laughs> okay, so um, Suzanne Plachette was in this, uh, and uh, as uh, one of the protectors of Ver- uh, Veronica Cartwright in the end, and basically, uh, uh, Tippi Hedren buys the two lovebirds and finds out that he's going to his his uh, 
his family's uh, compound in Bodega Bay. And she follows him there with lovebirds to give them as a gift. Uh, and uh, he has an overbearing mother who doesn't like any women around his, his her da- his her son. And uh, this all gets enmeshed in in a bird attack that happens uh, at the bay for no reason. Uh, you heard them talking about the chickens. The chickens stopped eating, and yeah. the birds start acting weird and attacking people in the town and then it gets worse and worse and then the birds attack them they actually go down the chimney mm-hmm. and attack them in the house uh just about everybody gets killed except uh except the the main characters and and veronica cartwright who has to live to go on uh nostromo so um so that's that that that's how it ends it ends that uh, they are the they escape uh, Tippy Hedron and Rod Taylor escape with uh, his sister, uh, and as they drive away from Bodega Bay, the birds are ominously crowded around, perched, watching the car. I'll tell you what, they should have kept the receipt from the lovebirds, because it turned out that that was false advertising, and they were hate birds. Actually, they were the, only two, bir- <laughs> they were the only two birds in the film that didn't attack. <laughs> Yes, and actually, That's this right. is loosely based on that. a real, huh? I do remember that. But go ahead, go ahead. Uh, loosely based on a, a story uh, that actually happened in Capitola, California, where a group of birds uh, attacked entire community uh, for for no reason. Uh, supposedly, the birds ate some toxic algae, and it caused them to behave strangely. But uh, mm. that's what it was based on. One little personal note just before we go. Uh, majority of the birds in the film are real, although it's estimated that more than 200,000 were spent on the creation of mechanical birds. Wow. And as you know, my friend Bob Weatherwax was a friend of the person who was the bird trainer in this. His name is Ray Berwick. Uh, Bob used to call him Ray Birdwick. Yeah, uh, see, I was going to yes, make that pun yes, too. Yeah, he was good with the with the, with the <laughs> nicknames. Ray had, and Bob tells me Ray had a peculiar habit. He used to drive around with his birds in a Mercedes, with the birds inside. Yeah, and let them crap all over the inside of the Mercedes, and he didn't care. <coughs> that's uh, that's <laughs> pretty impressive. Yeah, kind of weird. Yeah, Bob thought it was a waste of a Mercedes. Uh, <laughs> the gulls in the film were caught at the San Francisco garbage dump. Um, and uh, the sparrows that were used alongside uh, the pet shop to achieve the full effect in the house scene, the invasion of the house scene, the sparrows had to be, uh, they had to use uh, pet sparrows of uh, of Ray Berwick's uh, along with this uh, with the captured sparrows they had because yeah. uh, they weren't behaving properly <laughs> or something. I don't oh, know how you yeah. train birds. You know, really. Uh, Very carefully. I guess, well, if, if they're pets, they can come to you. I had I had a baby sparrow for a while. We raised a yeah. baby sparrow. And yeah. uh, it was very friendly. It would come right to you and take food right out of your hand, flip around, and you know, land on your shoulder and stuff. But yeah. Yeah, and, and according to what Bob tells me, this Ray was quite the, the bird handler, and he always had flock of birds in his Mercedes, so he had something That's going. so gross. <laughs> it really is. 
So anyway, all right. Well, we, we got to get going because uh, Michelle's got some X-Files to talk about uh, when we come back. So uh, hang tight. We'll be right back with more. It came from Cleveland for your Friday night pleasure. Okay. I got cut off there. Oh, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I cut myself up. Oh, I, I thought you were done. I apologize. I was. Okay. We'll be right back. It's going to be a good night. It came from Cleveland, Ohio. A land of strange rituals. The savage horrors of fearsome mutated beasts. Back from the dead. Kept alive by experimental science. Science runs amok when human beings tamper with unknown forces. Cut the power! Now at last. The real shocking story can be told. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. A nightmare combination of shock and terror, and you're invited. A foolish hunter. Something evil. Mother! Oh, God! Mother! Blood! Blood! Not recommended for impressionable children. Okay, we're improvising. Welcome back uh, to It Came From Cleveland, and uh, thank you, Joe, for all the uh, fun facts on Alfred Hitchcock, Miles for the interesting stuff on Star Trek, yep. and now it's time to get into The X-Files with Michelle. Where yeah, we let's just yeah, let's just run the intro real quick. Well, uh, I did play that last segment and I think I wiped it out to make room for something of Joe's so hang on oh that's me, okay yeah so let me um, uh, get that back and you can uh, you can uh, talk over it uh, okay as it were so there you go so yeah um growing up and you know in and in, 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 during the time that the X-Files was on um, I was a, a young adult out in the world trying to you know um and you're trying to live my life, but I could not miss seeing the X-Files. You know, it's, mm -hmm. you know, in the late 90s, you know, mid to late 90s. And when those tones came on, you knew you were going to have some fun. And oh, yeah. what I loved about it is that it played to a variety of people. It played to the sci-fi community. It played to the horror community. You know, it had... A little bit you know procedural drama to it so it was it was like a a, a multi-purpose workhorse mm -hmm. and so what i thought i'd do since it's gillian anderson and david coveney's uh birthday uh this month um david coveney um is uh august 7th, was august 7th 1960 and gillian anderson's august 9th 1968 i figured we could look into some of my favorite supernatural horror base clips and um i i hope you guys enjoy them as much as i did very cool um and the first one i chose because right now i'm getting a little ticked um it wasn't even the end of july yet and i started getting christmas uh catalogs and seeing yeah. christmas uh ornaments being uh uh, sold and you know I don't mind Christmas but I want Christmas to come after Halloween 
<laughs> you know, I don't I, want to I, see Christmas decorations and catalogs before then. So there was an episode, a Christmas episode of The X-Files, and it stars two great actors uh, alongside Gillian Anderson and um, uh, uh, David Coveney. And it's actually just a four-person X-Files episode. And um, it has Lily Tomlin and Adna Asner in it. And it is a episode called How the Ghosts Stole Christmas. And um, uh, I, I, the, the, the first clip I have is Mulder dragging Scully out on Christmas Eve. And that one is 2A, correct? Or 2? Two? 2. Um, yeah, It's 2. Okay, there we go. A merry little Christmas Let yourself be mine From now on Our troubles will be ours I almost gave up on you Sorry Check out lines of worse from rush hour on the 95 I heard Silent Night one more time I was going to start taking hostages <laughs> What are we doing here? Stake out On Christmas Eve it's an important date. No kidding. Important to why we're here. Why don't you turn off your car and I'll fill you in on the details. Mulder, I've got wrapping to do. It's the night before Christmas. Oh. Let's hear it. Give me the details. Look, if you got Christmas stuff to do, I don't want to, you know... Mulder, I drove all the way out of here. I might as well know why, right? I just thought you'd be more curious. Who lives in the house? No one. Then who are we staking out? The former occupants. They've come back? That's the story. I see. The dark gothic manner, the uh, omnipresent low fog hugging the thicket of overgrowth... Wait, is that a hound I hear baying out in the moors? No, actually, that was a left cheek sneak. Mulder, <laughs> tell me you didn't call me out here on Christmas Eve to go ghost busting with you. Ghost busting. There you go. Yeah, I think it's so great because it captures both of their personalities, you know, so well. You know, mm -hmm. and you know, she, you, you know, Scully's character being the good, the good Catholic girl that she is, and you know, Mulder just being the the skeptic but so excited about a possible real ghost story. Yeah. And um, what's funny though is the ghosts turn out to be Ed Asner and and uh, Lily Tomlin, and uh, one of the scenes that's really funny is when Lily meets Gillian. All right, and so that's 2A. Here we go. What? Maybe you repress the truth about why you're really here, pretending it's out of duty or loyalty, unable to admit your dirty little secret. Your only joy in life is proving him wrong. You don't know me. And you don't live here. This isn't your house. <laughs> you wouldn't think so, the way I'm being treated. Well, then why is all the furniture covered? We're having the house painted. Well, then where's the Christmas tree? We're Jewish. Hold it right there! Don't make me shoot you! Now stay where you are! We really attract them, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You know, we're having the house painted. 
well, why don't you have a Christmas tree? We're Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's, yeah, it, it's, 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 and, and just, you know, the comedic chops between those, on those two. And, you know, it just being a four person cast makes this episode really um, intimate. Mm hmm. And um, basically, you know, they're paying, they're, you know, the Ed and, and Lily's character play, paying a pair of uh, uh, ma old married people that uh, chose Christmas as the time to commit suicide. Uh, actually, it was like a murder suicide, I think it was. And, um, or it was, a, it was a pact. And they chose Christmas because um, how, and Lily will explain here shortly. Um, this is just as um, Scully sees. Ed Asner clearly at this time and realizes she's looking right through his head through a bullet shot wound. Oh boy. You see what we've resorted to? Gimmicks and cheap tricks. We used to be so good at this. We used to have years to drive them mad. Now we get one night. This pop psychology approach is crap. All it does is annoy them. When's the last time we actually haunted anyone? When was the last time we had a good double murder? Not since the house was condemned. This is embarrassing. Amateur uh, kid stuff. Look, if we let our reputation slip, they're going to take us off the tourist literature. Last year, no one even showed up. No. Of all days, why did you pick Christmas? Why not Halloween? <laughs> now, who is filled with hopelessness and futility on Halloween? Christmas comes but once a year. <laughs> Christmas comes but once a year. Yeah, and, and and they're right. You know, suicide rate do rates do go up. People do get despondent. You know, there's yeah. a lot of good feelings around Christmas too. But it's kind of funny. Um, the thing I like about Chris Carter is he tends to use music in a beautiful fashion. Uh huh. You know, and and a lot of times you can have some of the most horrendous scenes and um. And 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 have the most upbeat music playing behind it, you know, um, like Johnny Mathis. It's a, a wonderful, wonderful during the, the the home invasion scene in in, in the, the episode called Home. It was awful, but yeah. it the music just made it so much creepier. You know, it's like it's, remember if you remember um, in, in uh, uh, was it Clockwork Orange, the singing in the rain. Yeah. During the yeah so. Music can invoke great memories, but it also can make a horrifying memory, memory all that more. Well, so, how about, that, do, you, do you ever see a, a slightly different uh, twist on using music to great effect was uh, using the entire uh, full, I forget how many minutes it is, of Iron Butterflies in Agata DeVita in the end of Manhunter, directed by Michael Mann, which was the original version of Red Dragon, the film version of Red Dragon from the Hannibal series. Yeah, that's a that's a great score to use in something like that. Yeah, because you know, it, it's just it, so tense and you know, and and it's such a long song, and you know, by the time you get to the end of it, something horrible or, or crazy is going to happen. And I have noticed that a, a couple of my episodes I really like have a little bit more humor in them than 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 most did. And sure. um, the next episode, um, this one's from the uh, the uh, the episode called Bad Blood. And it's one of two vampire X-Files. There was one before this called Three. And that was with a female vampire that I think uh, uh, David Cumming was actually dating at one point, the actress that was playing her. 
But um, in this one, uh, this the show opens up with Mulder chasing down what he thinks is a vampire. Basically, it's, it, it, he, he stakes this kid, and then he's sh- showing uh, Scully the, his pointed teeth, his vampire teeth, and then Scully takes her finger and lifts off the plate that's covering his front teeth, you know, to be like a, like a, like a molded piece of vampire fangs. Mm-hmm. And that's when, when Mulder goes, oh. And um, then uh, Mulder and Scully uh, <laughs> let, the, let you know what's, what's happening at this point, and that's 3B. All right. Skinner wants our report in one hour. What are you going to tell him? What do you mean, what am I going to tell him? I'm going to tell him exactly what I saw. What are you going to tell him? I'll tell him exactly what I saw. Now, how is that different? Look, Scully, I'm the one who may wind up going to prison here. I got to know if you're going to back me up or what. First of all, If the family of Ronnie Strickland does indeed decide to sue the FBI for, I think the figure is $446 million, then you and I both will most certainly be co-defendants. And second of all, I don't even have a second of all, Mulder. $446 million. I'm in this as deep as you are, and I'm not even the one that overreacted. I didn't do the... with the thing. I did not overreact. Ronnie Strickland was a vampire. Was he, though? Well, what's funny about this episode, basically, it starts off like this. You know, they're, they're talking about their careers possibly being, being over. So what they do is they decide to uh, tell their, their, their story. And what's funny is the, the perspective. When they are in David Coveney's perspective, you know, he's all clear. He knows what he's doing. Yeah, Mulder, Mulder's, Mulder's, you know, he knows his, you know, he, he understands the clues. He's going for it. And the town sheriff is a doofus. He's a buck-tooth moron and just not, you know, not a competent guy. When Scully's telling the story, again, she's clear and clinical. She's Scully to the utmost, the, you know, the skeptic, everything. The, the town sheriff is very helpful, a very attentive, handsome man, suave and debonair. And it just goes on like this. And it is just so funny. I won't tell you exactly how it turns out, but just the comedic tones between their two stories is absolutely hilarious. 
All right. So uh, it, it's it's um he said she said kind of. Uh, yeah, and how their stories aren't matching, but how funny the differences are. Mm-hmm. You know, because you know Mulder's obviously jealous of the the sheriff. You know, yeah. and 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 Scully's actually kind of you know happy, you know content with the sheriff being so you know helpful and nice and 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 smart and all, and just how they are, just how a person's perspective. Oh, and that's Luke Wilson who played the sheriff. Yes, yes. <laughs> it, it was so funny. It was just, and how he would look so different in, in Mulder's uh, telling, you know, with the makeup and the, the buck teeth compared to uh, Scully's telling and all that. Yeah. It, it, it was really enjoyable. But um, the next one I picked out is a favorite of mine. And this one is the episode, it's called uh, Die Hand, Die Verlet. I don't know. It's it's German, so it basically means. Oh, I forget what it meant. Hold on. Um, gosh, it means uh, uh, by the hand. Oh, fudge. Die hand. I'm sorry. Uh, or die die hand. Die. Yeah, die hand. Die ver Yeah. Uh. So the hand. Yeah. The hand, the yep. oh God, what is what is what does Verlitz mean? Uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll look it up for you. But uh, uh, all right. So yeah. Um, so basically, I I call this um, a typical school board meeting and prayer. And this is the opening. All in favor? Aye. 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 All right. Hmm. Starting Monday. The track around the athletic field will be close to joggers at 8.30 p.m. instead of 10. Any other items before we call it a night? Yeah. Um, now, I got wind that for the spring drama production, Howard Roberts intends to put on Jesus Christ Superstar. You know how he is. Howard's just trying to do things the kids like. My point exactly. Um. I don't think that play is appropriate for this high school. Well, if he wants to be young, I have no problems with uh, Greece or Annie or... Doesn't Greece have the F word? Look, I'll talk to Howard. Okay, let's adjourn until next week. Deborah, why don't you lead us in the prayer? Jim, the game is on. It'll only take a minute. We've been letting it slip. Paul, why don't you get the door? darkness, rulers of the earth, kings of the underworld, I command the forces of darkness to bestow their infernal power upon me. May the black powers of our forefathers make us strong. Hail. Hail the lords of darkness. The hand that wounds Yes. That, yeah, yeah, that's that's your typical prayer that you would hear at a school board meeting, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's what it sounded like in uh, you know, uh, rural Ohio. 
Yeah, that yeah. that was just it, it just makes me laugh because basically you've got these guys here and you know they're obviously uh cultists of some sort. But when they when you interact when, when Mulder and Scully interact with them, they are like the most prissy, scared, uh concerned parents ever. Yeah. You know, talking about cults in the neighborhood trying to invade our area and you know, how you know, how are you gonna deal with the murder of this young boy this young boy and you know what's going on, you know, get these Satanists out of here, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of like the two faced, you know uh, uh, uh it's it, to me it just it, it it made me giggle. And plus, you know, it's about, you know, Satanism, you yeah, know, or and, you know, and I've uh, done, demon worship. Yeah, I've 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 dealt with phony uh, people who are like evangelicals or Baptists, you know, white Baptists, and and you know where I grew up, and that prayer that they did out loud is probably more accurate of what's in these people's hearts than the memorized prayers that they say out of you know some kind of duty, obligation, or superstition, you know. Right, because it's all about self-service. You know, it's all about yeah. you know getting what you want, not you know really you know it's it's hypocrisy, and you yep. you prevent you present one face to the public and you're something else in the private. And um, it's kind of funny because you know they're out there investigating this murder, and all of a sudden toads start raining down out of the sky. So you know Mulder and Scully are like, yeah, okay, well there's a tornado in the area. Drop the animals, you know, pick them up in the pond, drop them on us. Sure, all right, perfectly normal. And so they. Yeah, and they're in the school, and um, Mulder goes to get a drink of water, and this happens. Mulder, this is mass hysteria. And their presence here on a routine homicide only gives validity to their fears of occult murders. The water. What's wrong with it? It's going down the drain counterclockwise. Coriolis force in the northern hemisphere dictates that it should go down clockwise. That is impossible. Something is here, Scully. Something is making these things possible. Oh, creepy. Yeah, so when you see weird things like that, you know, you got to think something else is up. <laughs> it's, it, 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 if you're going against the laws of physics, you, you'd be a little suspicious, I think. Yeah. But, you know, Scully's ever the, ever the, ever the, you know, the skeptic, so... It's a good one. You got I, I, you like it unless you have a phobia about snakes. All I can tell you is there's a very very big snake in here, <laughs> and it's a very very snakes? hungry big snake. So. It had, had to be snakes. Had yes. Uh, no, that's so. great. That's great. Well, uh, I'll tell you what. We still have more X Files stuff to talk about a little bit more, and then uh, you have some other stuff about Jillian uh, Anderson you wanted to talk about as well, and David yes, Duchovny. But uh, we have a trailer break that you procured for us, uh, celebrating what's today's day and date? Yeah, we're in Friday the 13th, so I picked movies that all have 13 in them, or a TV show that had 13 in them in some way or other. Um, not all of them are Friday the 13th, but they are fun. I have uh, the uh, 13 Ghosts remake with Tony Shalhoub. I have 1408 with uh, John Cusack and um, Samuel L. Jackson. I have 131313, 13, which was a little known movie that came out um, on, in 2013. And I have Friday the 13th, the series. I Not to be confused with show. Friday the 13th. I yes, love that show. It's a show fun so little much. series. And boy, that redhead. Whew. She was what a number. Oh, yeah, Roby. Yes. Yeah. 
So, all right. Well, here we go. Here is our uh, 8-13-2021 trailer break for everybody. We'll be right back. I think I killed somebody. I know I killed somebody. There are ghosts around us all the time. Most of them, they can't hurt us. Most of them don't even want to hurt us. But there are exceptions. Is it bad tonight? Oh, bad? It's my professional opinion. We should get the hell out of here. Now. I represent the estate of your Uncle Cyrus. We have an Uncle Cyrus? Cyrus recorded this message six weeks ago. He asked it to be played for you in the event of his death. Arthur, I've instructed my lawyer to deliver my last will and testament. A key? A key to what? A key to your new house. This house is the fruit of my life's work. Oh my God. It is a one-of-a-kind home. It's marvelous, isn't it? Wow. Arthur, we've got some papers to sign in the library. After that, I would love to take you and the family around the tour of the house. This place is awesome! All right, now I know I'm dreaming. Well, your uncle was quite a collector of many things. What the hell was that? This Halloween. You're wasting your time. It's all sealed up. The only thing worse than being trapped in a house with a ghost. This house is not a house. We're in the middle of a machine. Powered by the dead. Is being trapped in a house with 13 ghosts. Maggie! What? We got company. Where? I can't see. How close is it? Close enough to hurt you. Go, 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 go! to get me killed I guarantee you nothing you're not going anywhere you're staying right here with us daddy everyone dies when Mike Enslin lost his daughter the afterlife became his obsession you probably want to hear all about our haunted history but after years of searching he no longer believes so you're saying there's no such thing as ghosts? I'm saying I've never seen one. Nothing would make me happier than to experience a paranormal event. Gerald Olin, manager of the Dolphin. I can just get the key to 1408. In the 95 years of the hotel's existence, there have been 56 deaths in 1408. 56. No one's ever lasted more than an hour. The first victims to Kevin O'Malley. Cut his own throat.
Hofstrom. Hey, baby girl. What's in your hand? Hey! You need to calm down! Get, him out. Get your hands off! Voice, you want anything? It just won't come off. It won't come off. Voice. It just won't come off. It just won't come off. <laughs> What's so funny? <laughs> this. Leap was supposed to add an entirely new month. Today is 13, 13, 13. I need to go save my daughter. It's not safe. Terror begins on Friday the 13th. An old antique dealer makes a pact with Satan and seals it with his own death. And the antiques remain cursed. Now the curse begins for the three who must retrieve his legacy of evil. Join these unsuspecting victims on a mission into nightmare. Friday the 13th, the series. The terror continues next week. No Jason Voorhees involved. But yeah, I loved the Friday the 13th television series. Uh, I think it was really great. Yeah, good old Louis Vondredes. <laughs> yeah. It was a fun show, and I, I remember that being in syndication when I was a teenager, and I'd stay up late in the summers and you know watch David Letterman and then stay up and watch that. And uh, it was just a hoot. It, it was a lot of fun. It had some really nice little storylines, some really cool cursed objects. Yeah. Um, one, thing I, one thing I did forget to mention, though, um, uh, but first we can say hi to everybody. <laughs> well, welcome back, Miles. Hello. Yes, yes. Hello. And Joseph, welcome back to you as well, sir. He's still here. And, you know, of course, I just watched uh, The Office the other day where... Pam and Jim went to stay at Shroot Farms and they made the Beats Motel joke. <laughs> oh, <So>. no. <laughs> the Radish Inn. So, uh, <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, so the Beats Motel. But anyway, uh, yeah, yep. there you go. But I forgot to mention, um, in, in the hand that wounds the 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 X Files episode, we talked about the, about the about the school and the the, the, the creepy uh, cult worshipping uh, uh, school board. Um, the name of the school, the high school, was Crowley High School. Oh, nice. And I thought, that's a cute little reference right there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You gotta love it. And, oh, I gotta mention, too, uh, our friend Joey Word has expressed uh, interest in coming on the show, and knowing how much stuff we had tonight, I invited him to come on next week, so we're gonna get a topic uh, that's up his alley to talk about we'll get him involved in uh some planning and uh get uh the cool black dude on the program oh that would be most cool so, okay most, yeah. okay we'll have double joe action again uh-oh double joe's yeah. no good uh <laughs> unless Trouble. it's jojo potatoes and then I'm, that's always good mm. so <laughs> anyway uh but yeah so uh check, tune in next week joey word will be here it's very exciting uh, but all right, Michelle, let's go ahead and get back to uh, your X-Files uh, episode picks. 
Okay, with, this is when I kind of goofed up the clips a little bit, but the next clip will be clip five. Basically, um, all of us we own our homes. Um, I don't know. I don't think any of us live in a homeowners association. No. Do we? Thank God, no. Okay, we neither do we. And as we know, homeowners associations suck. Yeah. So, did, I'm sorry, did you just want me to just run the clip? Yeah, run the clip real quick, and then All I'll right. explain it. So, this is the 5 Arcadia, correct? Correct. All right. Look at this. Honey, what do you think? Is this place us or what? You must be the Petries. Hi, welcome. Welcome to the falls. <laughs> I'm Rob. This is my lovely wife, Laura. Rob and Laura Petrie. We pronounce it Petrie, actually. Oh. Like the dish. Well, it's so nice to meet you. I'm Pat Verlander. I live six doors down. I'm the neighborhood welcome wagon. Oh, we're pleased to make your acquaintance, Pat. I really must say, it's already 10 after 5. I don't think you're going to make it. I'm sorry? The 6 o'clock cutoff. All move-ins are required to be completed by 6 p.m. It's in the CCNRs. It's one of our rules. Like the dish. <laughs> uh, Rob and Laura Petri. Yeah. That's hysterical, of course. Uh, Dick Van Dyke show reference there, everybody. Mm. Yeah, what, what's funny about this is it's basically, um, you know, for once, you know, Mulder and, and Scully have to play a husband and wife. And what they are there is they are they're looking, uh, try to figure out, there's been some very odd disappearances and just up and out selling of houses in this um where, where the owners just completely up and vanish in ah. this homeowners association and they're trying to figure out what's going on um i couldn't find a lot of good clips so i only have this one but basically it's a, it's another nice creepy supernatural one because it basically um it has a a, a tulpa in it which oh. is an yeah it's an ancient thought spirit it's basically something that's created by by either the combination of a group or a person's thoughts to exact revenge or exact punishment and well, it's kind of cool they, they 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 show up in several different um uh religions and 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 belief systems across across the world well and and they were uh talpas were what uh the the evil versions from the Black Lodge of people were called in uh, when when the Twin Peaks The Return came back. They talked about tulpas in that. The, yes, they did. The tulpa of Diane and, of course, the tulpa of uh, um, Cooper, you know, the, the evil Coop. So it's, a, it's another fun, fun, a nice one because the X-Files also says they've had golems, you know. Mm -hmm. They've had so many different of the supernatural community uh, creatures in the community, as well as um, you know the the, the sci-fi aliens and the and the and the conspiracy stuff, and you know uh, it it they've also uh, there's been parallels drawn between X Files and Supernatural, the TV program as well, because you know they've they, obviously X Files influenced a lot of what happened in Supernatural. 
Oh, yeah. And so, just even that goofy thing where they said, oh, Rob and Laura Petri, uh, you know, because they always use the, the most blatant, goofy aliases in Supernatural. Like, correct. You know, yep. <laughs> I think one time, uh, Dean, Dean, I think he's Richie Blackmore, the guitarist from Deep Purple or something like that, which I was like, all right, yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah, he's done some deep cuts. He has, really. Yeah. Um, so. But uh, yeah, so that that's a fun one. Um, the next one uh, I have is a clip. It's it's from a. It's called Sanguinarium, and it's basically ba it's another witchcraft, a somewhat witchcraft voodoo type theme to it. Um, and, Does that mean uh, blood? Does that basically, mean blood chamber Sanguinarium? I think so because basically it opens up with a doctor giving a patient at one of these, you know, uh, turn, turn them out by the hour, uh, plastic, uh, 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 plastic surgery clinics. And this doctor is supposed to be giving this woman liposuction. And, uh, he ends up giving liposuction to a patient that's there to have a, uh, scalp reduction. And, uh, he kills the guy in the process. So this is uh, Mulder and Scully uh, questioning him under the watchful eye of his lawyer. And one thing you should never bring up when you have a lawyer in the room is demon possession. What else do you call it? Sick. When you're in your body and out of it at the same time, without the ability to control your actions, to stop yourself from doing what I did to that poor man. What else do you call it? Spirit possession or demon possession? While these kinds of extraordinary mental states have been well documented throughout history, they've been much maligned, rightly or wrongly, and haven't held up in court well as a criminal defense. I would like to reiterate that I've advised my client against speaking to you, and I'd appreciate it if you would direct any legal discussion to counsel. Dr. Lloyd, are you currently taking any kind of medication? The occasional sleeping pill and, and uh, prescription antacid for my stomach. Would you mind allowing me to check the dosage and which ones? No, I really... I would like to know why, because I... I think you've gotten a clear picture of my client's story and his willingness to go along with your investigation. Yes, I believe we have. Dr. Lloyd, you say that you've taken sleeping pills. How much sleep did you get the night before? I, um... Uh, I can't recall. Uh, how many tums did you take? Yeah, so it it it's another really good one. I don't want to really spoil the plot too much, but it's really it's a really fun one. Um, it does have a little bit of grossness in it, so but <laughs> you know it's around its plastic surgery cl clinic where people are dying mm -hmm. at the hands of the staff. So it it it's creepy. Yeah, so sanguinarium means covered in blood. Um, so but okay. the the arium. To me, just uh, I, I thought that that suffix meant chamber, like aquarium, terrarium, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, but yeah, um, but no, and uh, this was a really traumatic scene of, of a tulpa in Twin Peaks: The Return of Laura Dern saying, "I'm not me." Uh, that was so disturbing. It was she was so well acted. Um, yes. But but, uh, but yeah, so tulpas, man. Uh, all right, well. Uh, we've uh, anything else you want to add about that episode before we get to uh, no, your final pick? I'd, I'd like to get through the rest of them, so I'm trying to be a little, you know, uh, quick. Expeditious. On this, so there you go. 
Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> um, the next one is basically, uh, yeah, the next one's the next one is um, uh, basically the introduction of Frank Black. Um, they, they, they had a spinoff series from the X-Files called Millennium, which was really good. And this is where yeah. uh, Mulder meets Frank Black. How well do you know this man? Only by reputation. He left Vicap uh, before I got there. But he's been called the greatest criminal profiler the Quantico ever produced. What's he doing here? Good morning. Apparently he uh, checked himself in for a 30-day observation. I gather the last few years haven't been very kind to him. But if there's anybody that can tell us about the Millennium Group, it's him who used to consult for him. Later he fought to bring him down at the expense of his own career and reputation. Single-minded? Sounds like someone I know. Hi, my name is uh, Fox Mulder. This is my partner, Dan Scully. It's a pleasure to meet you. You mind if we sit down? Who's playing? Uh, it's Notre Dame in Boston College. Yeah, the Fighting Irish and the Golden Eagles, huh? What can I do for your agents? Well, we're working on a case that uh, we feel you might have some particular insight into the death of four FBI agents. Do you recognize these men? I do. All four committed suicide in the last six months. All were exhumed from their graves in a ritual desecration. They were members of the Millennium Group, is that correct? Sir, we've been having a really difficult time gleaning any information whatsoever about the group. About its membership, its practices. I believe you can help us. No, thank you. I'm retired. I think you can tell by the circumstances that I'm trying to put my life back together. I can't get involved in this. We're not asking you to get involved. I'm just asking you to take a look at the case file. No, thank you. Black, the day after tomorrow is January 1st, 2000. That's the significant date for these people. That doesn't leave us much time. Don't you want to see them stopped? Well, Mr. Black, you are not what I was expecting. Agent Mulder. Yes. It's first and 18. Just let me watch this game in peace. It's third and ten. Notre Dame. Happy New Year. Same to you. Interesting. So, uh, now, why did he say that? Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, now from I, I'm wondering. Now this seems to be um, this episode served. Uh, if if I'm what I'm reading is correct, this episode served as actual closure a semi-closure for the canceled millennium series by uh because it got canceled on season three from declining ratings and if i'm not mistaken this crossover served as a way to like kind of close up some loose ends from the the series. oh yeah that was right this was the crossover to to talk about that yeah because he had mentioned you know, in the series, you know, his connections. And I think he even mentioned Mulder's name once in the Millennium series, but. 
Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Um, because I'm looking at um, uh, the, but it was created by Chris Carter, and uh, but yeah, it 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 doesn't. But yeah, it it says that that's how it came to uh came to be to to be a crossover. So that's fascinating. Yeah, so it was- and, and to me, that's great because that's what's done in comic books a lot of times when a series is canceled, like just unceremoniously and fans are like oh my god what happened with this you know a writer will take those characters and work that into like a a new comic that they're working on and figure out a way to give some kind of closure for that so that's that's exciting but uh go ahead okay i have uh four clips uh five clips left i don't know how many we're gonna be able to get to um but um basically David Duchovny was not only in in X-Files he was also in Twin Peaks and he played an actual a, a really fun little character. Um you all should meet Denise Bryson. Uh yeah, hang on one second. I need to uh I need to to dig those out real quick. Um That's okay. Yeah, I uh but uh, yeah, so but no, he yeah, so and, and that character actually returned in um, the uh, Twin Peaks: The Return. Um, yes, yes, she did. And there was a a great interaction for because again, you know, uh, uh, Denise is a trans- transgender character, and. Um, there was the the line where uh, David Lynch said to um, said uh, to Denise, you know, that that the agents who were were being ugly towards her needed to fix their hearts or die. Uh, that's something yes. that, that I had. And uh, but Michelle, I I do not see that you sent me any of those clips. I'm going through and I I see all of the clips from. Oh no! Yeah, you did not send did me not? those. You sent me the trailers. Uh, you sent me the "Beat the Devil" clip. Uh, no. You've got um, we've got Joe's stuff, Miles' stuff, and then I've got X Files through clip seven, and then that's all of the audio that's in there. Unless you sent it to me in a private message or something. No, I don't know why I didn't send them to you. I spent all day working on them. <laughs> well, oh, that just sucks. I'm I'm trying to send, them, but I don't know if you're going to be able to do anything with them. Uh, so, you can you can give um, it a shot. I can just try and play it straight from uh, Discord. Uh, and you know, we'll we'll uh, so if you can put them in there, I'll. I uh, apologize, everyone. Technical difficulties. Not a problem, but yeah, so, you know, but that that's, uh, you know, David Duchovny has done a lot of, you know, uh, outstanding work, and so has Gillian Anderson, of course, I loved her in American Gods Season 1, it's a shame she didn't return for Season 2, um, but uh, she was just uh, stunning in that, I, I don't think I've ever seen her flex her acting muscles as, as good as she did, Um in that yeah. but uh but anyway all right let's try and run this first clip uh from twin peaks uh and, and uh yes yeah, so this is uh once again uh, the what's uh denise's name in the uh, or uh david duchovny as denise what is, denise yeah. bryson okay here we go let's see how it sounds here so that makes us even now right 
Denise. Hi, Coop. Sorry, am I interrupting something? Special Agent Denise Bryson, Drug Enforcement Agency. This is a drug friend of mine, Audrey Horn. They have women agents? More or less. Audrey, if you'll excuse us. Agency business. I, I thought you were suspended. I am. Thanks again. Good night. Thank you. Well, are you welcome? <laughs> Photographs of an abandoned property on the outskirts of town. Jean Renault, Hank Jennings, Norma Jennings' stepfather, Sergeant King, mounted police. They were at the scene earlier today. In the kitchen, I found traces of cocaine and the baby laxative used to step it out. I think if you compare this, which was taken from the farm with the stuff found in my automobile, you'll find it be a match. That's good news, Coop. Yeah. Now, can we talk about something more important? Exactly how old is that girl? Denise, I would assume you're no longer interested in girls. Coop, I may be wearing a dress, but I still pull my panties on one leg at a time, if you know what I mean. Not really. Didn't age super <laughs> I well. I love that. But, uh, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, okay, so there we go. We got, we got that clip. And, yeah, uh, um, yeah, I also put them in, in chat for people to watch um, if if uh, we don't get to them all so they can get some enjoyment out of it. Um, uh, sure. Let's go directly, since we were talking about Gillian Anderson in um, uh, American Gods, let's go to her, um, uh, the uh, 10, which is her as uh, media playing Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, this is great. The god of media uh played by Gillian Anderson, uh, she takes several different guises throughout and appears on television screens and whatnot as different uh, media sensations, and Marilyn Monroe is one of the first. that's her uh just judging uh, from the clips of her voice there you know well even the makeup and the outfit mm -hmm. she was just perfect she was spot on oh yeah 
total knockout. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and it's funny too, because, you know, like she would show up and she never showed up the same way twice. No, the know? first time, uh, Shadow Moon saw her, uh, she was, I love Lucy, if I remember correctly. Yes. Yeah. Black and white. And, you know, and that, you know, the, the hair pulled up and the, mm -hmm. the red curls and all that. And the second time, um, yeah, it was Marilyn Monroe, but he saw her. There's a third time that she shows up, but she's not talking to Shadow Moon, but she's talking about him. And she's pretending to be David Bowie. Why, you pretty thing, you. Why? You have an image problem. You need to think about your brand. How you want the world to see you. How you want Mr. World to see you. Task with asking a few questions, you hang a black man from a tree. You've got your transmission and your live wire, but your circuit's dead. He was fucking with me. I told him not to fuck with you. Take a look at you, beating up the wrong guy. You're a good kid, just not good with people you don't know. Apologize. Please pass on my sincerest apologies to Mr. Wall. Mr. World doesn't want your apology. He would, however, like to re-gift your apology to Wednesday and his man Shadow Moon. Are you fucking with me right now? Mr. World expects your apology to be every bit as authentic as if you were apologizing to him directly. That was so brilliant. Yes, and it was the outfit that bright, that bright turquoise, you know, shiny suit mm -hmm. and the red hair. You know, brings back the days of the older Bowie. You know, it's just in the song so nice. reference, the, the 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 drops of the lyrics in there. You know, beating up the oh, wrong guy and oh, oh. the and uh, the you owe oh, you pretty thing. So oh yes, so classic stuff there. But, uh, but yeah, that's probably all we have time for. Uh, we're already over the top of the hour here. But, uh, but yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the evolution trailer was 57 seconds. And the, yeah, the, um, uh, the, 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 the um, interview with her on the red carpet of Princess Mononoke is a little bit long. But those are two other things. Evolution was great with David Duchovny. And uh, Orlando Jones, I think. A lot of fun. Yeah. Good movie yeah. if you've never seen it. And uh, Princess Mononoke. Check it out sometime. Covered yeah. it for the Keith David episode, so it's it's a great movie. Yeah, started also starring. And Billy, I I, Billy I put Crunch. her interview um in channel too, so people could see it because she talks about how you know she really enjoyed uh, voicing that part. Good, good. So very cool. Well, maybe we'll uh, save time for some leftovers next week too. But, uh, all right, uh, we got to wrap things up. Michelle, what else do you have uh, before we uh, let people off the hook? Um, just go out there and enjoy life. You know, there's some really cool stuff out there if you want to, you know, uh, look at some of the, the, the suggestions we've had. You know, if you've never seen something before, you know, check it out. Um, check out something old, you know, as, as well as something new, because there's a lot out there, and... You, you, you'd be surprised on what you can come across if you fall down the right rabbit hole. <laughs> okay, very good. So, uh, Miles. Yes? Anything you'd like to say oh. before we end the show? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm 
I'm good. I, I, good show, and I, uh, I had fun. He's, he's starting to run out of gas. <laughs> no problem. Uh, that's why I got an electric car. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, uh, understood. Uh, long hours, long heat. So, uh, Joe, what do you got? Uh... Good evening. <laughs> good evening, indeed. Yes, have a good evening. Have a good weekend, everybody. Yeah, and uh, don't stay at a place that has 12 vacancies. Thanks for stepping on my stuff, Tennessee. No, no, never. Yes, we have 12 vacancies, actually. Yeah, so, <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, do you have a vacancy? No, we have 12. <laughs> we have 12. <laughs> okay, creep. So, uh, on an unrelated note, everybody, uh, if I seemed a little out of sorts tonight, uh, I resigned from my job today. I'm moving on into self-employment and uh, going to get into the marketplace with the Affordable Care Act. And uh, onward and upward, I cannot uh, risk bringing something home from a mu crowded music venue who is hell-bent on making money when the pandemic doesn't have any signs of slowing down. So uh, I'm not going back, folks. I'm retired. Anyway. Uh, that's that. Wish me luck. We'll see everybody next week. Mother! Oh, God! Mother! Blood! Blood! <laughs>